You think you're not slaves, but you are. The nine to five existence of your current lives is structured by the American industrial complex complicit with our government. So it leaves you really questioning everything you thought you knew. sense of separation, the sense of isolation is the thing that is within you and me and makes us feel alien to everything else that's outside of us. So that is why as you sit there within your body and you look out through your eyeballs and you listen through your ears and you look around you, everything else is not you. And you don't fit. You're listening to Up Is Down with Dean Reiner. You know, uh, with the polar myth and ritual, uh, I wanted to find like, you know, what is the most common, simple, straightforward myth that people understand that encodes what I'm speaking to? And uh, funny enough, it's the biggest holiday we have. It's Christmas. People don't realize when they're buying a tree, they're putting a world tree into their home. Some of the uh, planetary bodies have been referred to as like fruits on a tree, basically, of like a cosmic tree. And so people don't realize that you're putting a world tree in your home. And they definitely don't realize that when they put the star on top of the tree, they're actually putting the North Star on the tree. And then obviously, where does Santa come from? Where is is he from? Yeah, he's from the North Pole. Um, I'm not going to get into it now, but a lot of people or there are some people out there who think that the black sun could be a central sun and that the whole flat versus spherical sort of debate um, isn't really uh, where it's at. And some people believe that, you know, we live kind of in a sphere, but with a central sun so that when we're looking at the night sky, we're actually looking inward, not outward. One of my friends just mentioned that he had heard recently that the black sun could potentially be a reference to Mercury itself. It's my understanding that we get the word three from tree and then uh, Mercury Hermes going up and down the world tree. To me, the closest community that has uh, gotten to this kind of information, uh, for better or worse, is the geocentric kind of flat earth community. And so I would say that because I spent time with those people, the Martin Kennys of the world, um, you know, people like Santos Bonacci and Eric Dubay, uh, because I spent time looking at their work, I feel like I was much better prepared to absorb it once I finally got around to it. And now that I finally got around to it and I'm realizing that I'm just kind of like tapping into this history that's always been there, I'm like really surprised that uh, more people haven't talked about it. And when I'm seeing like the remnants of it, like in various groups, um, you know, seeing this being alluded to, like within Freemasonry and like in tarot and everything else, I'm even more surprised that I haven't heard anyone talk about it. Is this why we're called people? And so I like that's one of the things where I'm like, wait a second. So we have we're people and then we have to participate in uh, we go to the polls for politics you know and so there's all these different like etymological things with polls where i'm like 
whoa, what if we are like we're a uh, we're a polar race, we're people. Yeah. Right. And then also, too, if you're being true to yourself, a lot of times people say um, you're true north. Yeah. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Up is Down podcast with me, your host, your enemy, your neighbor, your shadow, your former mailman, your best friend, your lover, your your voice in the night. Dean Reiner coming at you at the Up is Down podcast in this smoky burning hillsides of Northwest Oregon, an undisclosed location near a body of water. We like to call it the chalet. It's an aviary. It's a wonderful place, a magical place. Welcome to the show. Uh, this week, I am talking with my really good friend, Mario Garza. I don't know if you guys remember when I was talking a few weeks and weeks and weeks back with uh, Mr. David Weiss about Flat Earth. Mario joined me on that conversation as well as S.P. Alger. Um, Mario was the voice talking about polar versus solar. And so we wanted to talk about that. There's a polar versus solar worship thing going on that Mario's been studying for quite some time. And so we have a really nice lengthy conversation about that. Uh, my good my good lady here, Christy, she joins in the conversation as well. Before we get into it, though, I want to give you a little bit of a warning. The audio, for some reason, I don't know why, but Christy's mic never picked up. So she, even though she had a microphone, it... I don't know. It never picked up her signal. So she her audio is a little bit bad, but I tried my best to get it all um at least regulated and uh it's just it's less than perfect and I hope that's okay with you, but it should everyone should be loud enough to hear. But this was a really cool conversation. Mario's done a lot of work digging into polar versus solar worship, symbolism, the different types of gods and a lot of a lot of ideas as to how and why this subversion is happening and what makes it so important that this information gets at least recognized and understood. Mario's a good, good friend of mine, and it was a really, really cool conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. Before we get going with that, I want to give a shout out to Steve Fox. You are the executive producer for this episode of the Up Is Down podcast. Congratulations. I really appreciate your continuing support. Steve Fox is one of those people who has done a uh, continuous sustaining donation to the up is down podcast and it is that is the smart play that's the smart play and so because of that genius move steve you are the executive producer and i really appreciate that i want to give a shout out to Midas. uh Midas does a podcast with his daughter called fun facts friday and it's a really cool really cute fun little episode it's a good little podcast i mean uh he and his daughter just talk about fun facts Midas sent me something really cool in the mail it's a build back better copper uh, Joe Biden coin. Very interesting, very cool, very funny, and I'm going to keep it forever. Thank you, David Metis. It's really, really cool. I appreciate it. What a clever, clever gift. Um, another shout out to Will Beatty. You emailed me recently about maybe uh, jumping on the show, maybe doing a swap cast. Your podcast, Will Beatty's podcast is called Hunger for Knowledge. He, it's a conversational podcast he does with his homie, and he gets a couple uh, guests on there occasionally, and they just discuss um, music, Life, politics, religion, spirituality, um, it's its really, really cool. It's a cool show. I like it. It's pretty low pro. It's pretty lo-fi, and it's pretty punk rock. So, Will, um, I'm into talking with you, man, for sure. Uh, let's get together, man. Let's get hairy. And also, I want to read an email from a listener who emailed me uh, just the other day, a person named Stellan, and he, he uh, emailed me some thoughts about the use of the word Karen. And I know that the last episode I did with, with Larry about a week ago, 
Um, I really wanted that one to kind of get out there and sort of resonate with people. And I, and you know, what's interesting is that uh, Stellan called me out on something, which is, I'm really grateful for because I didn't really think about it. And it's about the use of the word Karen. And it's not that this person had a problem with it, but he pointed out that I myself have been falling into the trap of using these social engineering terms in a way that's really not helpful. And it only serves to deepen the polarization and polarizing is something that we're going to be talking about in this episode with Mario and Christy. But this, this, uh, this email came right on time. I'm just going to read a part of it from Stellan. He said that, uh, I've seen the Karen term turned and weaponized against those who question the mainstream narrative or mainstream policies repeatedly. This term was being rooted in the vocabulary of identity, political culture, and social media wars well before COVID. It's a very deliberate weapon of social engineering, and this COVID bullshit has just seen it deployed in full force. The problem is every side uses it as a term to describe who they see as the enemy. You call mask enforcers Karens. COVID believers call anti-maskers Karens. Videos online of people having emotional meltdowns in businesses and all the top comments calling them a Karen. And all it really boils down to is dehumanization of the other side or dehumanizing those who challenge what one group thinks are the agreed-upon rules. Man, you really nailed it, dude. I think that's, I'm so grateful to have that email and I'm so grateful that you reached out and pointed that out to me and that uh, I'm guilty of the same thing. And I think it would be better if we didn't do that, if we didn't try to dehumanize those who we oppose or those who we disagree with. That's a really great observation and I'm very, very grateful uh, for that for that email and thank you for pointing it out to me. And if there's anything else you want to say or anything else you want to point out to me, please feel free to do so at upisdownpodcast at gmail. All you rad, badass listeners and supporters out there, I try to respond. I try to uh, at least give you shout outs as much as I can. I try to keep track of who's donating and who's just writing and, and it's all love and it's all great. So I really appreciate that. Also, before I forget, I want to give you guys a heads up that I did a really, really great conversation podcast, a really good episode with my buddies over there in Eugene, the Truthzilla, Truthzilla podcast. Check those guys out. We had a really cool talk about kids, about society, about maybe relocating, what it takes to do that, really checking what you're worth and checking where your standards and values are as we navigate, especially as we try to be families, keep our families together and strong through these crazy, wonderful, horrifying times. It's a really cool episode. I'm very pleased with it, and it's always good to be with the Truthzilla family. So check out latest episode of Truthzilla. You can find them basically anywhere you find your podcast. If you're not already subscribed, you can also find them on Rockfin, where there's a that's a nice little platform with access to tons and tons of gold if you're into that kind of thing. Check it out. That's basically going to do it for the business, and let's get on with the conversation with Mario Garza from SymbolicStudies.com as we discuss polar versus solar worship. I guess I'm on vacation. I don't know. I'm. I'm. This is my year of joy, Mario. Nice, dude. I love it. Guess what room I got? I got Solilo, which is the fire and lightning and plasma and the marking on Harry Potter's head. Rad. I'm into it. Yeah. I feel like it's the year of joy for us too, man. Good things are happening. Yeah. Super fun. So we are going to talk about, well, first of all, who the hell, who are you? My name is Mario Garza and uh, I currently live. Hello. I currently live in Portland, Oregon, but we'll be moving shortly. 
Um, do you want a brief background? Yeah, yeah. How do we know each other? Yeah, well, we know each other through your lovely lady, Christy, who's here with us. That's Hello. right. Yeah, and um, yeah, she runs a shop that I frequent regularly. She has lots of interesting books and knickknacks and whatnot. Um, and as far as my story goes with this kind of information, um, I've been a graphic designer for 20 years, and so I'm very visual. And then uh, I transferred over. I thought I wanted to be like a director or somehow be involved in like the film industry or something like that. Um, turns out I was just really interested in symbolism. And so after film school, uh, I kind of found my way um, looking into tarot and occultism and um, things of that sort. And I got really into tarot. And basically from there, I've just really been digging into kind of all things esoteric. And so I would say that my visual interest started with design, kind of got transferred over to film, and then now it's kind of uh, the world of symbolism. Awesome. All those visual things makes perfect podcast content. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then I think uh, you were telling me before, I've heard you reference it a lot, that um, each of the months you've been rotating through the Zodiac. Yeah, so for like four years I've been studying each astrological sign um, during the sign itself. And I've learned quite a bit by doing that. And over the years, I started developing my own, I guess, system, uh, my own way of looking at the signs. And then I've also developed drawings for each sign, too. So I'm starting to release those on my website. Are you going to release a, a tarot deck? Do you have any plans for doing that? You know, at some point, maybe. Um, I think that would be a pretty tall order. So we'll see. But I think I can see myself releasing some sort of deck, yeah. Awesome. I think that would be really cool because you're a phenomenal artist and some of the artwork I've seen you produce with your studies on the Zodiac would make for really great cards. Um, it's just as long as you put Trump in every one of them. It's a Trump, <laughs> Trump card. Right on, right on. Can do. Well, thanks, just man. Can. I appreciate it. <laughs> just kidding. So that would be the inverted deck. That would, inverted deck. <laughs> that would go along um, with all the other crazy inversion subversion. Oh, and, and quickly, you mentioned your website. I think you also have an Instagram. Um, what is your website, Mario? So it's symbolicstudies.com. And from there, you can find out uh, how to find me on Instagram and all the other social media platforms. So symbolicstudies.com. And are you going to be releasing any information about each of the signs as you release the prints? I am, yeah. So I've released a few videos on Aries, um, and I'll be doing that for all of the signs. So next up will be Taurus and then Gemini, et cetera. Great. Yeah. That's really cool. That's something yeah. people can listen to and watch and kind of follow along and learn more about what's happening around them, within them, at, in real time during the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, for it's sure. really, really cool. Has your, has your artwork and your creative process evolved much in a significant, noticeable way as – as your interest in the occult and symbol symbolic studies has changed? Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, it's really funny when I was doing design work, um, for an ad agency years ago, when I started looking into occult symbolism, I thought it would be fun to try and encode some of my work with that just to see what would happen. And I swear like four or five times in a row, every single time I presented logos to a client, they ended up choosing the one that was encoded with that information. And so for me, that was just kind of like a testament um, to how powerful some of these symbols are and how much we, 
use them in everyday life and see them in everyday life and how we're kind of um, hardwired, I guess, to react to some of these things. And so I would say on that end, it became helpful for me as a designer, like as a professional, um, but then my artwork too. I felt like I've needed to express myself with some of this stuff, with what I've been learning. And so um, right now with this project for Symbolic Studies, the Astrological Project, I'm starting to um, really draw more. Um, I feel like I was predominantly a layout graphic designer and relied way too heavily on Photoshop. And I feel like I just needed to push myself in a new direction. So I'm trying to do as much hand-drawn stuff as possible these days. Awesome. And you're kind of incorporating just some of the esoteric value or some of the symbolism and some of the maybe the the context of the symbolism into your into your work more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm just fascinated. It seemed pretty apparent to me in in the last piece that I saw from you, which was pretty phenomenal. That was the Libra, wasn't it? Uh, Aries. Aries. Yeah. Opposite Libra. But um, yeah, no, definitely. I think as the more I study this stuff, the more I feel like I want to at least um, kind of put out artwork that um, speaks to that and kind of explains it in the way that I understand it. And really, to be honest, the artwork that I'm creating, I feel like what I want to do is um, create work where if somebody sees my Aries print, as an example, I want to be able to show them what Aries is really all about. Um, And so uh, it's been this thing where I've really wanted to take almost like a whole lesson's worth of information and really put it into one piece so that if you are interested in astrology, you know, you can look at any of my pieces and take away a lot from it. At least I think you can. Maybe yeah. someone who's just starting to look at it maybe wouldn't see all those little details and nuances or whatever, but they're there. Yeah, because the image has a story in itself. And then there's layers within within the story that you've got as well. And that can all yeah. be found at SymbolicStudies.com. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, totally. So in a way, they're kind of like giant tarot cards or something right now, these prints. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you look at a tarot card and you might just see something, you know, seemingly mundane. But once you really start digging into it, there's just layer upon layer upon layer in there. And one of the trippy things for me has been, as I've been creating this series, is that the pieces are starting to kind of speak to me and speak back to me. And so as I'm looking at some of this work, I'm learning new information from it. So that was kind of um, something I really wasn't planning on um, being a dynamic, but here we are. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Curiously, when you were, um, when you do artwork or creative work for clients, do, are your clients open enough that you can tell them that you're working on graphics that have um, an intention behind them? Or are they open enough that you can introduce the option for them to speak their intention? Or do you just work with what you know that they're looking for and integrate that into your craft? That's a great question. Um, I would say it's client by client based. And I tend to look at every project as a new beginning of sorts. And so I feel like I don't have a real process with design, as crazy as that sounds, since I've been doing it for two decades, you know. But really, each client is coming from a different perspective. They have different wants and needs. Um, And I really try and just be as malleable as I can um, for them. And so 
for some clients, I have brought this up and talked to them on that level. But for a lot of clients, I have not at all. And um, when I was doing that experiment, too, with the esoteric symbols and the logos, um, I did that for maybe four or five times or something like that. And I feel like now I've just taken the lessons from what I've learned from that symbology, and I'm just using it all the time in all of my artwork. So it's going to be there no matter what. So curiously, if you could... um... I don't even know if it's possible. I know I think of a few symbols, but if you could break down the language of symbols into just maybe 10 images, um, maybe at some point during our conversations, you could talk about which ones you think would be the most primitive or the most primal or original ones versus those that layered in over time. So if you had to, if you had to take those symbols and make an alphabet of them, which ones would be the most important for us to interpret, you know, the oldest, I guess. Like the foundational. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, I know we've talked about this quite a bit, um, but the dot and then the circle with a dot in the center, you know, to me, um, I refer back to that all the time and I think about it all the time. And it's something that has such immense value to me. I kind of can't uh, overstate that. It really is incredible how much information that really simple symbol encodes, you know. And then even just, um, you know, the dash or just a single line, whether it's vertical or horizontal, just like Isa the rune, right? Um, there's a lot that can be said about that, too. Um, the spiral is really primitive. Um, you know, a lot of these basic shapes really can be talked about at length um, and can be written about, you know, in multiple volumes of books. And so um, it's kind of hard to talk about some of this stuff sometimes because you almost don't even know where to start. Because don't have the vocabulary for it. Yeah, exactly. And so it's more of a subconscious sort of thing. And so I feel like it's difficult to speak to some of these symbols sometimes because um, it really encodes so much that it's kind of never ending sort of thing. Yeah. Which I kind of feel like the subject we're going to talk about is kind of like that, too, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So let's get into it. So you want to talk about polar versus solar worship, more or less. Is there another way you want to frame that? You know, it's really funny. I sent it to you in an email as polar versus solar worship, but I wish I would have sent it as solar versus polar worship. Uh, (laughs) It's such a simple switch, but it kind of um, it it means something, that little switch. Um, But as far as the subject goes, um, there's just a lot that can be said about what's going on here. Um, I was on your show in January and I brought it up briefly and I feel like I never got around to completing my thought with it right yeah that but, was the the David Weiss episode that was really transformative for me and that was such a great conversation good roundtable with everyone and you brought up you brought up some of some of what we we're going to talk about in a, in a really kind of casual way that I could tell there was a lot more meat on that bone and you mentioned uh, I think it was the night of the gods book which was I think at the time you were deep down that rabbit hole and i suspect you're probably still there are you coming up to the surface on that oh man i'm still deep within it um you know i i brought it up um in january but i feel like i didn't admittedly have as much information um that i would have liked to have have to like have spoke about it at length and so i feel like today is a really good opportunity just to complete that loop and let you know what i meant by all of that because ever since then I've read several more books about this, and I've just put together a lot more um, connections that I feel like will be helpful for me to explain and then will be helpful for the audience, too, to understand kind of where I'm getting at with everything. And also, why why is it important? You know, like what what is it that brought that from talking with David Weiss about the heliocentric model to what Mm -hmm. we're 
speak about today, I think is really valuable. Yeah. And how yeah. Changes your perspective of your personal life and the world around you. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I feel like the propaganda that we're given, the mind control that uh, we're being fed, you know, obviously it's intended to create a certain type of human. And so it is programming. And so everything that we've been shown in school and the media and in culture, it creates a specific type of individual. You know, obviously it's a more complacent sort of person. Um, but I think that the lack of polar mythology in our culture um, and the lack of understanding um, regarding everything that I'm going to talk about, I think it's had huge implications. And I think that uh, we've been intentionally not shown this kind of information. Uh, but we have been shown a lot of solar symbolism and we have been shown a lot of solar mythology and a lot of cultures um, seemingly are solar based. But I think that maybe we're missing something with that. And that's what Night of the Gods talks about a little bit. The fact that there are a lot of ancient cultures that are um, said to be solar based, but in actuality, they're polar based. And so I think that this has been, you know, it's been a big revelatory sort of thing for me. It's been a big paradigm shift. So um, it might be one of the bigger paradigm shifts that I've gone through um, as I've researched over the years and looked into various topics and controversies and, and everything else. So I feel like I'm being called to learn more about it. And I feel like I'm being called to kind of uh, talk about it because I don't think we're supposed to know this stuff, honestly. So the establishment promotes solar culture. Um, I think they know about the polar side of reality. Um, this information that I'm talking about, it's definitely not new at all. It's, in fact, it's very old. And that's one thing that I'm realizing now is that I'm like tapping into a tradition of sorts. I'm not just piecing together new info or new facts or new connections or whatever. It's like I'm tapping into something that's like very, very ancient and very primitive and very old. Um, for me, the solar versus polar worship concept, I mean, there's historical implications, um, there's astrological implications, of course, symbolic. Um, this speaks to even like our mathematics and our cosmology. And even I think there's probably some geopolitical stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. I would say probably maybe even most importantly, though, is uh, the psycho-spiritual aspect of it. In that uh, this system, in my opinion, from what I'm finding out, uh, it's more of a holistic system versus um, the solar-based system. And we, we say that we live in a solar system, but I would argue actually now that we live in a polar-based system. Um, it's more wow. holistic. And um, as I've studied uh, occultism and symbolism and mythology and everything else, it's really confusing, basically, right? And so there's so many different schools of thought. There's so many different um, lodges out there and mystery schools and covens and cults and everything else. And a lot of them have just different ways of looking at the world. And I would say for me, um, I, I was always looking for something that kind of tied everything together, that, was, um, that syncretized everything. And I feel like this polar symbolism um, information that I'm going to get into kind of wraps it up nicely. I'm not done researching. I'm not saying that I know it all or that this is the end of my journey with this kind wait, of wait, stuff. Wait, wait, wait. Are you telling me that the science isn't settled on this solar <laughs> deal? Right. That's what I'm saying. Um, could you um, maybe just in a quick summary, what is polarization or solar versus polar what does polar mean to you so that everyone knows um, how to to visualize that 
Sure. Um, so I guess symbolically, uh, the solar symbol, the sun itself, I believe has been completely overemphasized in culture. And I think it's replacing an ancient polar sort of worship or polar understanding or polar concept. And that the simplest way of summing it up, to be honest, is that um, it's my understanding that a lot of the ancients believed that their true God resided in the north and that he's polar in nature and not solar in nature. That's kind of the quick summary, I would say. So when you're talking polar, you're, you're almost referring, I don't want to say polar opposites, but you're referring to, um, I, I would imagine, not just uh, the physical poles of things, but like the polarity, like the Kabbalion refers to as well with um, polarity. So you've always got two, two different ends of the spectrum. Right. And then uh, what connects those ends would be um, the symbolic pole or symbolic phallus. Yeah, right. Almost like an elevator. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. A pole or the tree of life. OK, sorry. I just wanted to summarize that a little bit because uh, there's a lot of different ideas of what um, polar means to people. Yeah, no, thanks for the question. Um, and so that kind of explained, uh, I kind of went off on my why does it matter section. And so um, I'm ready to talk about the Night of the Gods, though, unless there's any other questions. Uh, I think the only question I have is, in, in, the, in your research of this uh, solar versus polar, mm -hmm. which seems to be like you've uncovered um, what seems to be a pretty clear inversion or subversion of of information and of a matrix do you mm -hmm. do you think you've pinpointed any any times or events or instances in which you could prove that more or less i mean of course you can't prove ideological you know um subversion necessarily with with events and times but do you think you've come across some some examples of clear inversion oh sure yeah definitely um and, and you're right uh, this is i think Polar versus solar is the true inversion. I think if you were to talk to most people, um, they would say that the polarity is between sun and moon. And um, I think that there's something to be said about that. And I don't necessarily think that they're wrong. But I think the heart of the big, big inversion would be solar versus polar. And yeah. we're going to talk about it a little bit later. But I'm wondering if there's some Tartarian stuff going on here. You know, um, I'm going to get into the etymology of um, Tartarian um, or uh, Tartary, rather, and talk about that a little bit. And I'm just asking questions, basically. But it makes me wonder if, you know, the reset that people are talking about right now online, if, uh, you know, it was a physical reset of sorts, but um, it's also potentially a, a symbolic reset. And then we're going to have we're going to talk about the Nazis uh towards the end of the show. And I think that there's something to be said about their symbolism being polar in nature and potentially um, that group either being given this symbolism, perhaps they adopted it organically, naturally. But um, I think that there's potential for their symbolic language to have been promoted for very specific reasons and then also brought down for specific reasons. Awesome. Yeah. So, Night of the Gods. How did that come to you, and and what? How's that? How's that book affected you? Yeah. Well, it's really cool. I love these types of stories. But um, Christy here sent me a photo of the chapter list of the Night of the Gods, Volume One, 
And once I saw it, I knew that I wanted to read it. And studying geocentrism for a while, there was a lot of themes in the chapters that spoke to me. So um, he was speaking to things like this world mountain or world tree, um, this universal wheel, the hub of of a wheel, um, the spear as kind of a polar symbol, things of that sort. And um, I started reading volume two online because I found a PDF And then not too, too long ago, I got volume one in hand and I started reading that. And it's just really blown me away because I think that he was onto something. And he seems to me like he was a pretty special guy for a lot of different reasons. Who is the author? His name is John O'Neill. And so uh, volume one was published in uh, 1897. Um, And so there's two volumes, volume one, volume two. I haven't read volume two yet, but I plan to. Um, In the beginning of the book... He actually apologizes and says that he's sorry if he kind of uh, presented the information in a haphazard sort of way. And he said that this is such a big topic that he found it difficult to really find a concrete way of um, showing everybody this information. And so when you read the book, it would, I think it's going to be a dry read for a lot of people, to be honest, but I got a lot out of it. He does jump around quite a bit um, with different ideas and topics and stuff. Um, he also kind of like seamlessly like will transition from like English to Greek to Latin and uh, doesn't translate some of those passages. But he talks about like world culture like through and through. He, he's going all over the place. So there's stuff about, um, you know, Greek mythology, uh, Japanese mythology, Taoism. He, he talks about the I Ching, Norse mythology. He's kind of going all over the place with it. Um, and so, again, his central sort of point is that the god of the ancients is polar in nature and uh, symbolically resides in the north. And that there's this central axis point below, below the north star, which the heavens uh, rotated. And this pole, by the way, uh, polar, you know, it. I'm, I say polar and I refer to the pole quite a bit. But, you know, it's also a world tree. It's a pillar. Uh, it's a spear, it's a mountain, it's an eye. Um, he has sections about it being a leg or a thigh. He has a section on one-leggedness being a polar symbol. Um, you know, it's also referred to as bears because of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, which mm-hmm. um, are circumpolar and revolve around the North Star. And then he also talks the about North the number Star seven. Is also known as Polaris, isn't that right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's one of these things where... It's um it's pretty trippy because everything now when I'm decoding it it seems like it is polar in nature and so I think it might be some sort of mirroring effect where like everything in our reality is a reference to the pole um and this whole dynamic because that's where everything comes from basically So with that said you know as as um, we look at things on a small scale we know that they're the same large because uh, we see the patterns repeat would you also say then that looking, because I know you talk a lot about troidal fields, that there's mm-hmm. a pole in most everything? So uh, almost like a portal um, or a gateway of sorts. So like when I when I think of the pole now, when I see that, it, it's like a method, like a gateway of getting between the different realms as well, like a, a way or a method to navigate or at least one of them. 
So yeah. you say that you see a repeat of this pattern. So we have the the North Pole of our planet, but then we also have our North and South Pole of our of our bodies and the cells and everything else as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I would say uh, that's how I look at it too. And um, I think for me, one of the symbols or gods that kind of um, speaks to this quite a bit is Mercury or Hermes. And so um, he's known as being um, a traveler, the messenger of the gods. And he goes up and down this central pole and he is a psychopomp. And so he goes between the realms to the heavens and then to the underworld. And it turns out, I had this hunch already, but he uh, literally states in The Night of the Gods, John O'Neill does, that Mercury is a polar god. And so to me, it's amazing that this isn't even like the idea of a polar god is never discussed at all. But yet when you really break down some of the deities out there um, that certain groups, uh, you know, highly revere, you'll find out that they're actually polar in nature. And so Mercury to me is like maybe one of the best examples of this. And so sometimes he's holding a caduceus, which is like a staff with two snakes wrapped around it. To me, this is symbolic of uh, that central pole. You know, and I know I've told you guys this before in person, but I, I believe that Mercury um, heavily influenced uh, what we know as the post office. Uh, the post is this central po- pole, which is why, you know, uh, we have things like postage and uh, right. you know, a postal yeah, and Mercury service would, and everything. Mercury being a psychopomp would run up and down that pole delivering information, messages back and forth as quick as he could. And I mean, one, one thing I want to to mention is that I think it is it's interesting you say that there is no there's no acknowledged polar gods but I think on the contrary the way that it has polar gods have been acknowledged has almost been like kind of cartoonified with mm-hmm. uh, like ice gods and almost like in this fantastic kind of fantasy sort of context where there these that like there is some sort of mm, long-armed acknowledgement of these ancient ice gods and ice giants, but they're never in any way deified as they were like Christ or um, any other, you know, son well, of God. Be probably because there's such a focus on the the sun god. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. It's been almost yeah. cartoonified and car- caricatured. Well, that, that brings my question, actually. So if Mercury is a polar god, then... Would you, or have you found that there are specific gods that can, I guess I would call polar gods, that can traverse the pole versus those that cannot? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I would say, uh, yes, there are some that do not travel, and there are, other, are others that do travel. Um to be able to give you a list off the top of my head, uh, I wouldn't be able to do that. But yeah, I think there's something to that for sure. Yeah, it makes me wonder if the older or the ancient ones have that ability uh, versus some of the newer ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Uh, or maybe they're limited to certain realms, uh, like we hear in the like with the nine worlds, where you have um, different beings that can move from world to world, and some cannot. And then of course, mm-hmm. you think of Odin and his horse. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, what would be some of the um some of the polarizations of, of polar gods versus solar gods. Uh, like gods that have been inverted? Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, well, the first one that I read about, and so it sticks out in my mind, um, is the uh, deity known as Ta. And I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Ta or Pata from the Egyptian pantheon. And so John O'Neill was saying that, you know, modern day Egyptologists refer to him as a solar deity. And he believes that he's actually a polar deity. And when you look at this uh, god, he looks a lot like the Oscar statue. And he has a shaved head and he's holding a staff. And so when you look at the staff, I mean, when I look at, look at all staffs now, you know, I kind of think that potentially it's it's polar in nature. And that that's what actually it's a reference to. Um, and so I think a lot of the Egyptian stuff, when people see discs on top of um, various gods' heads and drawings and whatnot, he's trying to make the claim that these discs are actually a reference to the North Star and that only suns with rays that come out of it uh, are a reference to the sun. Interesting. So, like, not just the standard halo imagery of the disc, but an actual emanation, a, a, a radiation of that same halo would then be representative of the of a sun Right, right. And you'll see this a lot um, in like Crowley's tarot deck is the winged sun. Um, and a lot of times the winged sun is on top of a pole. And a lot of times there's snakes too that are either wrapped around the pole or coming out from behind the disc. And when I look at that now, I don't necessarily know if he's referencing the sun or if he's referencing the North Pole or this polar aspect. Um, the dot or the circle on top, I think, could be uh, the North Star. And he makes a point to have these in every single magician card. And so uh, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, Crowley created three different magician cards in his deck. And depending on the deck you buy, you're either going to get one or you're going to get all three. Chances are you're probably only going to get one. But if I'm not mistaken, every single magician uh, variation has a winged sun disc, quote unquote sun disc in it. And this card is uh, attributed, corresponds with Mercury, which is what we were just talking about. And I think Mercury has a big part to play in all this stuff. And so I think he understands the symbolism. And I think that he put it in there potentially because of this northern uh, polar concept that I'm speaking to. And he wasn't trying to reference the sun. I think that maybe he knew um, a bit about this kind of stuff, but never explicitly talked about it, at, at least as far as I'm concerned, or at least as far as I'm aware. So if there's such a focus on the North Star, say the North Star, then what would be the opposite of that? Not even necessarily the opposite, but um, like the South, for instance. Do we have any symbols or representation that might represent the opposing pole? It depends on your cosmology and how you look at the world, I would say. Um, if you're going to look at it from like a heliocentric perspective, I would say that the north would be probably uh, the north star and northern hemisphere, and then the south would be the southern hemisphere. Um, I would say that generally it would be uh, the underworld, and so the north star would be like the heavens or the top of the dome of the firmament, and then um, the opposite of that would be the underworld. And potentially, too, I'm kind of open to the idea that the underworld or the opposite of the north star would be kind of like either the void or the abyss or our subconscious or things that are not meant to be known here, you know, in this current um, incarnation. The, the, the black sun or something. Um, I mean, there's gotta be some symbols that would represent 
the other, since there's such a focus on one pole and not the other. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. Um, one of my friends just mentioned that he had heard recently that the Black Sun could potentially be a reference to Mercury itself. Have you ever heard that before? Mm, actually, I, I think I may have more recently, and I just I passed past it, but I do I do think I ran across that somewhere, yeah. So to me, that's fascinating that um, that could be the case because of the polar nature of everything. Um, I'm not going to get into it now, but a lot of people or there are some people out there who think that the black sun could be a central sun and that the whole flat versus spherical sort of debate um, isn't really uh, where it's at. And some people believe that, you know, we live kind of in a sphere, but with a central sun so that when we're looking at the night sky, we're actually looking inward, not outward. Yeah. You know. It's a mind twister, but um, there's something that feels valid in that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not dismissing it. Yeah. So you want to move on to the North Star stuff? You got this here. Um, what, what, uh, what's going on with Polaris? Sure. Um, well, I mean, Polaris has, you know, it's been known as like the hub of the wheel. Uh, a lot of people use it. I mean, it was the primary source of navigation for a long time, right? That's my understanding. Um, it really is kind of amazing that we're not we're not talking about it as much as we should, and uh, we're not really taught a whole lot about it in school. And so, the North Star is where everything revolves around. It's where everything rotates, right? And so, you just have to wonder, well, what does that mean? for that point in space? What does it represent for the star itself? Um, I'm kind of thinking that, or my understanding basically is that, um, you know, there's so many different angles here, man. I I have a whole lot of notes um, that I could get into, and I'm just trying to figure out, like, what would be the best angle or the best approach here with it? And with the, what it almost feels like it's both the in and the out, the beginning and the end. Um, Mm Mm-hmm some sense but uh but if you could also talk about how it changes and that well i guess there's other we've had we've had this location somewhere different it varies or it moves right yeah it does seem like it moves and um in the night of the gods he actually does have a little table of the different stars that he believed were the north star at some point including draco and then vega and lyra and so I should send that to you sometime because I know that that's a specific interest of yours. Um, but the North Star, though, I mean, um, Freemasonry, as an example, they, I believe, might be a polar based system in disguise, as an example. And so there is a lodge in London. I'm sure there's probably multiple lodges like this, but right above the checkerboard uh, lodge floor there's this gigantic blazing star and they publicly acknowledge this to be the North star. And they even have a ladder going to that star. And so this would be Jacob's ladder, I believe kind of in their way of looking at things. And then around the star, you see all of the astrological signs, right? Um, In the Egyptian way of looking at things, my understanding is that they believe when you died, that you rode a symbolic stairway to heaven towards the North Star. Yeah, I remember reading that in Book of the Dead. 
Yeah. And so um, to me, the North Star seemingly symbolizes, uh, you know, everything polar in nature and kind of therefore where we come from and where we return to. And so um, the origin stories based around the North and the North Star are many. And so um, there is this kind of perpetual fascination with the North uh, in mythology. And there are groups that were uh, polar in nature and they wanted to go as far north as they possibly could to see what was going on up there. And um, the Egyptians weren't the only groups to acknowledge the north as being where you return to. Um, Christy, I know this is like an interest of yours and you've asked me this before, but in Night of the Gods, John O'Neill is saying that when you travel eastward, um, that is the spiral upward towards the North Star. And that when you travel westward, that is the spiral downward to the underworld. And so there's a lot of groups that um, have an emphasis on the east and on the north. There's a lot of different groups that have rituals based on the north or the east. And it could potentially all be based on uh, this north star Polaris business and that they want to return to where they came from. And so even um, the Vedics, they have uh, their cosmology um, there's these uh, gods called the Rishis, and there's seven of them. And there's one for each star of uh, Ursa Minor and Ursa Major. That's the interesting thing, is that this is the Big Dipper and Little Dipper, right? So the Great Bear and the Little Bear. Each constellation looks very similar to each other, which is really amazing. Um, and they each have seven predominant stars. So when you're talking about seven symbolism... Um, I think what you maybe are referencing are is this constellation itself. And when you're looking at the, literally the number seven and the way it looks, it kind of looks like a dipper. And even when you uh, put the dash in there, it looks even more so like a dipper. And so I think this is probably where we got the number seven from, the actual shape of it. Sure. Um, and the Egyptians had uh, this tool called the ads, which was a woodworking tool. And it basically looked like a number seven. And they would use this in afterlife rituals. Um, specifically, there's this ritual that I looked into called the opening of the mouth ritual. And they would put the ads um, to a pharaoh's mouth. And I believe they were doing this in conjunction with um, Ursa Minor or Ursa Major hanging from the tail of the North Star. And they believed that if it hung from the North Star and was vertical, that this was the appropriate time to access this gateway that you were speaking to earlier. And the ads, once again, looks like the number seven. And so it's a reference to the seven stars. And also, uh, if you look at the rune Sawila, which happens to be the rune I mentioned earlier that I've been working with this year in particular, but it has seven in it as well, and it resembles... Um, you know, it's the, the marking on Harry Potter's head. It's the... it's. It could be considered part of the swastika imagery, um, but it's like a it's like a spinning or a turning or a movement. So it falls in line too with uh, with what you're talking about getting into. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's also a lightning bolt. Yeah, it looks like a lightning bolt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then even uh, the seventh tarot card is the chariot, and so uh, there's a lot of firmament North Star symbolism in the Rider Waite version of the chariot card. Um, I think that card encodes a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about as well. Um, and then going back to Freemasonry, you know, they put a G inside of a compass and square. Okay. And so G is the seventh letter, right? Um, when you look at the compass and square, a lot of times the compass 
there's like a pivot point on the compass at the very top. And sometimes they put an I in it. Sometimes they put the G in it. Sometimes they put a star. They put a few different things in there. But I'm starting to think and wonder if this is actually just uh, a North Star reference. And so the compass, you know, it's meant for um, creating angles, measuring angles, and then drawing circles. And so it's symbolic of the heavens. And then the square is symbolic of Earth, basically. And well, so uh, there's, the, there's the compass that you use, you know, when you hike, which is always predetermined to just you know, point to due north. Exactly. This is another one of those dual purpose words. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Definitely. In the book, so he mentioned that the Polaris star has been in other locations. Um, and, and Vega was referenced. And I think I've seen, is that the next position the North Star is supposed to be in? Or do you recall? So what? let me see here. Uh, I actually have it up because I figured we'd probably get to this point. Um, and so he's saying, so obviously Polaris is the current star. I believe he's saying Cepheus might be the next one. It looks like it's cyclical, at least the way he's um, illustrating it. Um, so that's what he's showing here, at least. Uh, but I'd have to look into that a little bit more to be. I, I'm, uh, about I'm wondering it. with if there's a um, with with the change of the North Star and movement into a new placement, if that doesn't somehow coincide with new aeons, or I guess I call it new new earthly management of sorts. Like a right. of power. Under new management! <laughs> right, yeah, no, I could definitely see that. There's definitely something to it. I mean, he included it in his book for a reason. Um, so this is a specific topic that I want to look into more at some point. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally agree. Um, the other thing, too, uh, in regards to the North Star, you know, um, this is the Z-axis, right? Isn't the Z-axis the vertical line versus the X and the Y? I don't know. I have to look that up. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, and so I think a lot of Z-axis symbolism, look, we're, we're talking about an axis point, right? And so that's another thing that I've realized, too, is the um, the use of the word axis and how pervasive it is and what it's actually referring to. I believe it's referring to this polar axis point. Um, but uh, this axis point is really significant in which, in where, you know, it's where the, uh, it's w what everything revolves around. It's everything uh, that rotates. That is where it spins around, just like the hub of a wheel, you know? Well, and so. When you have the Z axis, then it triangulates. Ah, right, 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 yeah. From what I can see, so that, that creates the the Y effect, but I mean, essentially, um, it triangulates, which is interesting, which makes me think of a third pillar. Um, that there's there's this fixation I know that I've had with triangulation, so you, you might have two points, but once you've added the third, then you have a different dimension or a different layer, a different uh, perspective that can change once you have that third angle. So right. The axis, yeah. Exactly. So the central pole is the z-axis. Got it. Yeah, yeah. That that's how I look at it, at least. So that would be the that that could be the the middle pillar. Mm, mm hmm. Uh, yeah. I guess depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Huh. Is Dean still with us? Yep. I was just eating a pear. I want to step <laughs> away from the mic for a minute. It was very delicious. Right on. Right on. It's all good. Yeah. Well, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. The birds, the bears, the bees. Yeah. What's going on with Ursa Major and Ursa Minor? 
Well, um, they're really significant. They're more significant than what I previously realized. Um, it's really interesting because I've been studying astrology for a little while now. And I kind of was open to the idea that astrology was perhaps a um, distorted system or that it was a simplified system or that there could be some other way of looking at the heavens that made more sense symbolically. And when you kind of look at what the alternative might be, you know, the different types of astrology. So, um, you know, tropical versus like the Vedic way of looking at astrology, you know, um, there are differences, don't get me wrong, but um, I'm coming to realize and understand that there is a circumpolar astrological system that is closer to the North Star, basically. And I need to look further into it, but I've heard that it's a seven-stationed system, which goes along with uh, the seven stars of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the Great Bear and Little Bear. And so I think that this is probably what the primitive astrological framework looked like, that before we had a um, ecliptic base system, which is the path of the sun, that I believe the ancients, or at least some of the ancients, were referencing or looking into a circumpolar based system, meaning that it never dips below the horizon. So if you're looking at the constellations and you're looking at their position in the sky, you'll notice that part of the zodiac is under the horizon at all times. Mm. Um, with the circumpolar system, it's not like that. And so this may have been like the first sky clock that that uh, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor may have been the first sky clock, basically. And it rotated around Polaris um, almost kind of like literally like uh, the hands of a clock sort of thing. And that it may have been simpler to understand. Um, I don't know the science of it yet, to be quite honest, but I'm going to be looking into it. The reason why I got really interested in this specific topic is because of a book called The Gates of the Necronomicon by Simon. Um, just looking at that picture. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Simon. I just looked it up, yeah. Which is another book I got from Christy. And um, if you look at the cover, they just show one of the dippers, right, hanging from its tail. And long right. story short, yeah, see that now, right? Long story short, um, he's referencing H.P. Lovecraft's Necronomicon, and apparently in that lore, um, you're able to access this central gateway via the timing um, of the Ursa constellations. And he even gives rituals like in the book on how to access it and when you want to access it. Unfortunately, um, I don't know when it was published, but it only goes up to 2018, I believe. Um, and then after that, you're just going to have to figure it out on your own, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But um, he's saying that what you want to do is that when the Ursa major constellation, I believe major or minor, I, I, I honestly get them confused all the time. But uh, when it's hanging from the tail that um, you want to access each individual star and walk this uh, procession and that each star is a reference to a different planet and the first star is a reference to uh, the moon and then from there you go through the different planets and then I believe you eventually end up um, at Saturn. 
I'm not really into rituals, to be honest, so I don't know what is supposed to happen, I guess, if you perform these rituals. Um, but it's all there in the book. But uh, he makes a big deal about um, the Ursa constellations. And so the more I look into it, the more I realize that the ancients definitely held them in high esteem and that there's a lot going on there um, with them. And it's amazing, too, because they're like the simplest constellations to see. They're right there, you know. Um, they're 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 huge. At least uh, Ursa Major is pretty huge, and uh, yeah, you know, and even a kid obvious. can identify them. Yeah, they're obvious to your eye, even on like super overcast, cloudy nights, and they're the first ones you learn as a kid, next to like Orion's belt. Right, right, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, um, Crowley, he had a group called the Argentum Astrum, which I believe stands for uh, the Silver Star. And if you look at it, the symbol for that group is a seven-pointed star, and within that star, he has like a vaginal Vesica Pisces symbol. And then he has sevens all over the place, you know. And so um, it might seem like a stretch for people who haven't looked into it. But I do believe that the number seven ultimately is a reference to this, these star systems up there, these constellations. And so I think that maybe perhaps that group was a big reference to the North Star, Argentum Astrum, Silver Star. So what Silver Star exactly? You know, is it the North mm. Star? I think there's a pretty good chance, and I think that the vaginal symbol um, is probably a reference to this gateway. Wow, yeah. I mean, it seems to make sense. That's pretty crazy, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think so. I love it. Polar myth rituals. What's going on with polar myth rituals? What What, what are some of the things that would be consider it a polar myth ritual versus or maybe are those also things that have been inverted subverted and been kind of transformed into more of a a solar centric solar systemized rituals like like the like easter and things like that right um well i kind of spoke to it a little bit earlier um but there are a lot of different groups who had various rituals that were encoding um polar symbolism and so um, here are my notes. I have um, the ISIS thesis by Judy K. King. She was saying that essentially the Egyptians thought that you accessed the uh, afterlife side of things via uh, the north and that you go northward. Right. right. And so they had different practices, I believe, to ensure that they would travel uh, accordingly. And... I think a lot of other groups have had very, very similar um, takes in that you want to go north and that um, north is where you want to end up once you're done with this life here. Um, a lot of groups uh, worship the north or worship the east. A lot of groups have uh, put their different um, uh, worship temples facing the north for very specific reasons. Either my understanding would be that they um, set up their temples so that when you enter into it, you're facing the north, or when you're exiting the temple, you're facing the north. And they had diff different various takes on why you would want to do that. Um, and so I think it's kind of encoded um, subliminally uh, in a lot of these different groups, um, religious you know, ceremonies and, and whatnot. Um, but I kind of, I kind of spoke to some of them already, but the big ones that I understand more so were the Egyptian ones. Um, and then I just spoke about the Necronomicon and then, uh, what's kind of happening with, um, the afterlife and why you would want to go northward. 
So with all the discussion about the North, have you run across any groups or um, anything specific to wanting to go South instead of North? I have not, but I mean, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if there were groups like that. Definitely. So um, that's something I'll have to keep an eye on and see if there are any groups out there that do do that. They're terrorists. Well, yeah, because, All of them. Because there's such a, you know, there's such a focus on the sun and north. Um, you have to ask if the if the goods aren't going on in the south. <laughs> like, you know, like like why why is there not more information on that? There has to be something relevant. It might just take digging. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, possibly. Um, so I'll I'll look into that honestly, and I think it's a really great point that you bring up. Like, what yeah. is going on with the South? Yeah, maybe the yeah. party's going on in the South. Right. Maybe yeah. it's maybe it's, it's all popping up. Maybe that's the false light when we die. We get headed. Where does <laughs> go south? And then also, so any thoughts then on the Garden of Eden? Since it seems like it would be in the main, um, in the main, right where the the pole comes through. Uh, any thoughts about the Garden of Eden being in the north? Yeah, I mean, according to Martin Kenny, who we talked about before we started recording, I believe um, that he believes that that's where Garden of Eden actually is. It, it is in the north. And so um, there's always this tree right in the Garden of Eden. Well, um, my understanding is that this would be the world tree. And so it's a reference to the world tree, um, Yggdrasil, if you want to call it that. And um, he makes the correspondence with the Garden of Eden being closely associated with Mercury. And if Mercury is closely associated with the North and this uh, central axis, to me, that kind of all all makes sense. And so um, with his way of thinking, he believes that um, new races essentially come from the North and get pushed outward and that we're just constantly living through various cycles where uh, new races are being created and then put out here on Earth. And then uh, we kind of live on like a ring-based system. And so the oldest rings would be um, the furthest exterior of uh, this cosmic egg, if you want to call it that. And that would be ruled by Saturn and Jupiter. And then you go inward and inward and inward. And then um, the central innermost ring would be ruled by Mercury. And he refers to that as the Garden of Eden. So the closest to the world tree. Yeah, and you know, you gave me a visual some time ago about the rings of the tree trunk, which was uh, really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Definitely. But, you know, uh, with the polar myth and ritual, uh, I wanted to find like, you know, what is the most common, simple, straightforward myth that people understand that encodes what I'm speaking to? And uh, funny enough, it's the biggest holiday we have. It's Christmas. Yeah. You know, and so people don't realize when they're buying a tree they're putting a world tree into their home, you know. Um, it's not referred yeah. to as that, right? But that's what they're that's doing. That's so interesting, yeah. That's just that's a really great that's a really great well, uh, observation. It, and at least more currently, we adorn it with spheres or ornaments. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And um, some of the uh, planetary bodies have been referred to as like fruits on a tree, basically, of like a cosmic tree. And so people don't realize that you're putting a world tree in your home. And they definitely don't realize that when they put the star on top of the tree, they're actually putting the North Star on the tree. Oh, yeah. And then... <laughs> Brilliant. Right? And then, Brilliant. obviously, where does Santa come from? Where is, where is he from? Yeah, the pole. The North yeah. Pole. Yeah, he's from the North Pole. And so, um, you know, the fact that Christmas is, like, arguably easily 
the biggest holiday here in the West, and it encodes all of the symbolism, to me, is is pretty incredible. And I've heard uh, someone make the case that um, Santa represents the North Star, and his elves represent either planetary bodies or uh, or other stars, basically. Um, so to me, that's that's all pretty incredible. Uh, but specifically, the World Tree aspect, the North Star aspect, and then the North Pole aspect, to me, I think is really relevant. That's amazing. Yeah. Is there anything else about some of the Christmas ritualization um, that you find to be really symbolic and and lends itself to your theory? Yeah, you know, it, it probably would be too much to get into here, to be honest. Um, but I, I have a hunch that there's a big overlap with Christmas symbolism and actually of all the signs, uh, Aries. And I'm studying Aries right now, and I'm uh, kind of like putting out content about Aries and everything else. And I noted this, I noticed this a couple years ago, but when I started looking into Arian symbolism, you know, I was just surprised at how much of it overlapped with Christmas symbolism. And I'm still kind of working out my theory about why that's the case. I have a few hunches, basically. Um, but at some point, I do want to kind of uh, publish that information because I think it is pretty interesting. But uh, Aries, to me, represents this idea of center. Um, the idea that uh, from the center, everything emanates and uh, kind of springs forth, which is why uh, Aries represents the spring. Yeah, and, fountains. Um, yeah, fountains and everything else. And so to me, that's what the north also represents. It is like the spring, you know, and that's what the Garden of Eden to me represents, too. It's like this fountain, um, fountain of youth, if you will. And that's the other thing about the north. Go ahead. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at Aries and um, it, it's also triangulated. So you've got your X, mm -hmm. Y and Z. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to me, the Aries symbol t looks like it's a little sprout or something, which could yeah, be the beginning of like a world tree. Or, or your, um, you know, the toroidal. But I mean, essentially, exactly. you have three points when you're looking at the symbol anyway. So. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's something about all of that stuff. But, um, you know, maybe at another time I can talk. Uh, about that but you know this is kind of just the christmas symbolism stuff um this is just me kind of um saying this in passing so i haven't even really spent any time trying to like find other uh symbolic codes within christmas that speaks to the north but i bet you they're there yeah yeah wow yeah it's really cool i'm looking at the aries sign and to me the first thing that crosses my mind is that it looks like a very rudimentary ram skull oh yeah that's what it's supposed to represent it's very it's it's just very very primitive and and nearly perfect in that aspect but that seems so counterintuitive to like a, a sprout like a wheat sprout or a grass or something like that or, like how, how are the two related or a division of the of the one besides mm -hmm. the toroidal because now that i mean as soon as you if you have an acknowledgement of a toroidal field even just the shell of it just the hint of it it's there clearly yeah i mean to me the way i look at it is that it's really like the most basic sort of thing with it is that it represents energy and that it's uh energy uh, coming forth and uh, becoming something and so aries is the first sign of spring um it's a cardinal sign, so it's like very powerful, but it's not as refined, perhaps, as a fixed um, sign or as a, 
a mutable sign. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I think of things growing now and when I think of life, I, I think of destruction, too. And so it's just like, you know, for that little baby uh, chicken to hatch, you know, it needs to break the shell. Right. And so in order for a seed to become its full potential, that seed needs to break and uh, ultimately disintegrate back into the earth and everything. And so um, that's kind of what I think about. Feed off of everything around it as well, slowly absorbing and taking life forces from everything around it in order for it to grow to its potential, whether it's a plant or an animal or. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, well put, dude. Uh, I'm right there with you. And so Ares is ruled by Mars and Mars is known as like the God of war or the planet of war. Right. And so um, when I see things um, that are fruitful in nature and thriving Um, I think of Mars now where I never used to because I used to just think of destruction. But destruction really is the first act in creation. And so they need each other sort of thing. And so I think there's something kind of to that is that uh, the same energy that creates a war and creates uh, distortion and and discord and and violence and mayhem and stuff is the same energy that allows life to thrive and grow. It's the same energy. You, well, you, you will know our joy by our trail of dead. There's also a lot of sacrifice involved as well. Uh, like if, exactly. If you look at this as a as um, a model of where we live here in this on this planet, nothing lives without the death of something. I, I don't care what it is. Nothing can survive without the death of something else. And so it requires sacrifice in this cycle, um, which I suppose. You know, to someone coming from off-world that doesn't live like this, this could be very hellish to think that even ourselves must die for other things to live. But that symbol also represents that, like like we said, it, it cycles into the ground, it feeds off of itself, and then it comes to life again. It's The whole process is really beautiful and violent and sacrificial, which is an interesting time that we're in right now as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. No, I feel you on all of that. Um, and this is the nature of fire, right? And it being a fire sign. And we start the astrological new year with a fire sign. The fire has to like feed on something. So, um, and it spreads. And so, yeah, the the sacrificial component definitely is is huge. Fantastic. So I think we're going to, do you have anything more you want to throw into this, to the the Christmas symbolism of the polar versus solar? Or do you want to move on to what you hinted at earlier with some of the juicy stuff that good old Nazi occultism that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I'm good with the Christmas thing. Cool. Thanks though. (laughs) Right. So you mentioned that, that you suspect that the Reich and the Nazis were perhaps maybe not even consciously aware, uh, maybe consciously um, practicing polar worship. I think that the possibility is there. Um, and so one of the things that I have yet to mention, I don't believe, is the fact that the swastika is a northern symbol. Go figure, right? Um, and so when you're looking at the Ursa Major constellation or Ursa Minor, um, when you look at those constellations every quarter of a year, they rotate by a quarter, right, of a, of a circle. And so they look like an arm of each swastika uh, branch, basically. And so there's four arms 
and they each point out from the center and then they branch off. And depending if you have it flipped or whatever, uh, the branch could go either which way, but they each have a 90 degree branch at the end of them. And it creates kind of like this very like cyclical sort of like uh, spirally sort of thing. And so it almost it's intended to be rotated, basically. Yeah. Symbolically, it's intended to be rotated. It's uh, it's a reference to the North Star and the procession of the heavens, basically, and the rotation of the heavens around a, uh, a pole. OK, and that's from our perspective, too. You know, that that's what you're going to see. So if anybody goes out and stargazes or whatever, just acknowledge the way um, the uh, Big Dipper and Little Dipper look from the perspective of the North Star and notice how they rotate around the North Star uh, around the year. Okay. And so this symbol... Yeah, and so this symbol... Because is two overlapping um, Soelos? Yeah, so we look and show that movement. But what's also interesting is to look at just the simple lines of the cross. And so when the cross is fixed, you have just lines. But if the cross was in movement or motion as things like a chariot wheel, as it turns, it starts to give that illusion of something being left behind. And the faster it goes, like watching um, wheels on a car, the, the spokes start to disappear. But there is a transition mm. In complete stillness and that movement that would show or look also, I believe, um, like the appearance of the churn that we're talking about or the swastika or the sawilo. So the fixed cross also would show that imagery, I believe. And it was Dave Talbot that triggered this off in me, um, I don't know, like 20 years ago when he was talking about alien symbols in the sky, or I can't remember what the documentary was. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, but it takes us back too to just the the four directions and the the angles the um the movement of a fixed cross in yeah things. exactly and that's another thing with the uh, four directions too is they all emanate from a central point right yeah. yeah um and so to me the swastika pretty clearly now i would say is a uh polar central axis celestial axis symbol yeah. right and so, um, and I was saying earlier too, right, the number seven being related to Ursa Major and Minor, well, it's almost like the swastika is built up of four sevens. Yeah, okay. I was just seeing that right now as you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. So um, the swastika to me, I mean, is the most dangerous symbol in the West, at least. Can you think of another symbol that's more dangerous than that? The dollar sign. <laughs> I mean, I would rather wear a dollar sign on my T-shirt walking down uh, yeah. Town Square than, yeah. than a so swastika, it's definitely personally. definitely a trigger. And, and yet it's been around for a very long time, and you still frequently will see it um, etched or represented in the palm of Ganesh. Ah, right. Yeah, definitely. Oh, but that's the good one, though, because it's pointing the other way, right? Yeah. Well, that I gets mean, into directions and, and inversion and, you know, going left clockwise or counterclockwise. So um, the swastika to me is like the most dangerous symbol uh, here in the West, at least potentially the world. Um, and I'm, you know, it just got me thinking, I'm like, why is that the case? You know, um, it's a shame because it really is a beautiful symbol, you know, and encodes so much information that um, it's just uh, a tragedy almost that we can't use it and that it's been tarnished as much as it has been. You'll notice that usually in Nazi uh, regalia and flags and whatnot, you will see that the uh, swastika is within a circle. Okay. To me, this is like, it, it's really simple and basic, but this is pretty significant because 
it's a reference to me further solidifying the fact that it is about this northern symbolism that I'm referring to because it's very the circle to me is more of a celestial firmament sort of concept closed idea. Representing yeah. a kind of a closed system. The egg. Yep. And it's uh to me it further references the fact that the swastika should be in motion and moving as such. Um when you type in like Nazi swastika or something like that, you're gonna see a lot of artifacts where there's an eagle right holding a swastika Mm -hmm. and most of the time you're going to see an eagle holding the swastika within a wreath and so this is just you know um again it's they're trying to associate the swastika with the circle and so you will see sometimes the eagle holding a swastika without the circle, but most of the time it's going to be within a wreath or, or something circular. Okay. Some sort of container. Some sort of, different than yeah. Even Ouroboros. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so if you think about the energy that something like that, whether it be physical energy or um, spiritual or energetic energy that comes from something spinning and spiraling that appears to be basically the, uh, the mixer of life here for our planet as it turns and churns. There's a lot mm-hmm. of energy that can be harnessed from that. And everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but as you said, as a dangerous symbol, we've been conditioned and trained ourselves to um, to repel it and to dishonor it and to hate it. Uh, it makes me wonder what that symbol could have done should we have embraced it without all the negative connotations and history that's affiliated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, so to me, it seems like it's one of these things where it was uh, built up to be brought down uh, yeah. or built up to be destroyed, you know. And so um, I kind of had a hunch I was going to look into it uh, regarding the eagle and see if there's any northern um, symbolic value in that. And I finished uh, Night of the Gods recently. And funny enough, he brings up the eagle and he says that the eagle is a northern bird, symbolically at least. And so yeah, I thought that was kind of curious. There's a guy named Ryan LaCroix who's been mm-hmm. on. A, he's got his. Matthew um, yeah, Matthew, yeah, Matthew LaCroix. He's got a really great, uh, really great body of work. He does some pretty deep dive uh, breakdowns, dissections of the eagle versus the serpent. He talks about the oh. texts. Yeah. Anki versus Enlil and, and such. Yeah, Matthew okay. LaCroix. Check him out because he might he might be a good resource for you to, to learn more about the, the eagle stuff. I could not even yeah, possibly yeah. paraphrase where he's going with it. <laughs> it's been a while since I've heard two, him speak. Two, uh, two opposing lineages competing for power. Right. Uh, oh. d- does he make mention of uh, the northern aspect with the eagle by chance? I haven't heard it. I couldn't say. It's been a, it's been about a year since I've really listened to him and and uh, and read some of his stuff. It's been about a year. So, but he, he does talk about it as universal symbols, and that you could literally look at the flags and see um, those that are of the serpent and those that are of the eagle. So there's there's a very prominent division there, which makes me think of um, you know the the polarization. But uh, it's it's like brother rivalry, I suppose. Mm. With mm-hmm. lineages, but different bloodlines of maybe the mothers or the fathers. But it, it's Cain and Abel stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that is. Uh, and then in Mexico, you have the flag where the eagle um, has the uh, serpent in its talons. So yeah, that's he, kind yeah. of interesting he, too. He breaks that down. He talks a lot about oh, cool. St. Patrick's Day and like uh, a lot of the history of our um, usage of eagles as symbols of freedom and liberty. Um, 
but really, as we know, if you're paying attention, that that mm -hmm. liberty and freedom and democracy comes at the great cost of human suffering and totalitarian control. Mm, and mm -hmm, uh, that there's mm -hmm. been an inversion that, you know, we've been taught to uh, be repulsed by snakes where perhaps it's the other way around. Mm, it depends mm -hmm. on angles and perspective, as we can see both more than more than one truth can exist. And so essentially the Anki Enlil is just two different, um, I would just say two different lineages and forms of, of control from, from the way I see it. But it's definitely a serpent versus the eagle. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, here you have the swastika, which is, a, in my opinion, a northern axis symbol. Yeah. And then you have the circle, which kind of, to me, further cements that. And then potentially the eagle now being a northern symbol. And then you have the uh, idea that the Nazis were interested in uh, the poles, uh, both the north and south pole. Although I feel like I read more about um, their southern exploration uh, potentially, but they were into this idea. Uh, I believe the concept started um, in Greece of Hyperborea, which means beyond the north, beyond the mm -hmm. north wind. And um, there's some interesting history with the Nazis and this group called the Thule Society. And uh, this northern origin, uh, I believe, I don't know if it would be a, a country or a civilization known as Ultima Thule is something that I want to look into further. And uh, the Thule Society logo is a swastika with a sword pointed down. And John O'Neill makes a big thing about swords being uh, a reference to this polar axis as well. Um, so to me, it's just very curious that um, they would be interested in the poles just in general. And uh, also the fact that they would, uh, would refer to themselves as Aryans and there are people in India, the Vedics, who refer to themselves as being Aryans, who also have this northern origin genesis as well. Um, so to me, there's some overlap there that I think is worth exploring. Um, and basically, I, I just think that a lot of their symbolism points to everything that I've been speaking to today. And a lot of the Norse mythology with Yggdrasil um, being a world tree and then the runes i know christy we've talked about this but um the fact that the uh the original potential rune for the the whole set would be isa which is like a straight line a vertical straight line you know that that would be the first letter and that that could be a reference to the poles as well and then probably one of the more interesting things to me too is the fact that you know the two main groups of world war ii were referred to as the allies and then the axis. Yeah, fantastic, yeah. And the axis you know, of evil has been a, a go-to phrase to basically, you know, perpetuate the myth of, not the myth, but the, the Hegelian dialectic of constant conflict with unstoppable right. forces, unresolvable conflict. Yeah, exactly, the axis of evil. So to me, uh, that's really curious. And I understand that axis means like multiple different things, especially with warfare too. Uh, but you have to wonder why we use the word axis in general and why it has so many different meanings. Um, and then something I was recently looking into is the idea that, and you know, I don't know who Hitler exactly was and what the whole entire game was about, to be honest. Um, so I believe that there's a pretty good chance that he was a construct of some kind, um, an actor, um, whether he, uh, knew that or not, I'm not sure, uh, how much of this is organic, how much of it is orchestrated. I think that's like really all up for debate in my opinion, but 
they say that he was really interested in this idea of acquiring or using the spear of destiny, which is the spear that uh, punctured the side of Christ uh, when he was being crucified. And so uh, there's all of these different stories about like where the spear is uh, in the world, who owns it. Are there any legitimate, uh, are any of these copies legitimate or, you know, uh, have they all been destroyed? You know, is it just a a concept or uh, a myth of some kind? What is it really speaking to? Um, You know, with my recent research, a lot of uh, what John O'Neill says about the spear is that it's basically it's a northern symbol, um, is that it represents this central polar axis. So it's another way of uh, referring to the pole, basically. And so to me, that's another curiosity. It's uh, it's also like the talking stick. Whoever holds it has the power to speak. And so it can also be a transition of, um, of power. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's what the symbol means too, anyway, right? Anything polar in nature or anything phallic in nature, it is that power, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. To me, all of those things combined, I feel like there might be something there when I look at like Nazi symbolism now. Um, I see a lot of polar based stuff, but I'm kind of saying that about a lot of things these days. Yeah, <laughs> so. it's, hard not, it's hard not to see it. And then it's hard not to see how we can be. Uh, triggered or pulled in a direction and then of course with everything being polarized if you can step out and be that that z axis i guess you can be that that middle and have a different perspective to see all of the illusion of it i wanted to mention really quick you mentioned tule um and i totally forgot about this but william henry i think did an entire book that where he used that word so many times i couldn't get it out of my head for (laughs) Um, I'll look, but I, I think it's got a pink cover to it or something. I'm going to look for it. But I think he wrote a lot, William Henry did, about Thule being heaven of some sort. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. I yeah. can see that. Yeah, so I'll look for that. All right. So all this solar versus polar stuff is really, really interesting. It's it's pretty fascinating. And you got most of this stuff from Night of the Gods, and that just kind of furthered you along on a different level of thinking about stuff. Is that accurate to say? I would say so, yeah. I mean, um, I was looking into some of this stuff uh, before Night of the Gods, for sure. Um, But he kind of really helped uh, bring a lot of different ideas together. And he was such a nerd for it that he just continually blew my mind. It took me a long time to read the book because I was just, like, researching everything he was saying, pretty much. So, yeah, he he was on it back in the day. Do you think think studying the toroidal field would lead to any further answers oh yeah yeah definitely i mean that's that's one of the um kind of like concepts here that uh i considered putting into the the show notes because it's such a valuable piece of information or a valuable symbol to learn about because it's seemingly everywhere too and it fits within this whole entire system as well Uh, so for people who don't know the toroidal field essentially looks like a donut and so the central part of the donut would be referred to as the hy- uh, hyperbola, I believe. And this would be that central pole. And um, it basically kind of rotates in and out of itself. And um, there's a spiral sort of dynamic going on with it, too. And so when you look at a tree as an example, imagine there was no uh, ground uh, for a tree that was um, growing and thriving. The trunk, right, is right in the middle, and then the branches flare up, 
and then the roots kind of flare downward and outward. Yeah, I and, think a really good depiction of that of the toroidal field, which when I I think I was about seventeen years old, I had a a shirt. It was one of the few white shirts I ever had, and it had the uh, Celtic Tree of Life. There you go. And it was like that's basically it. Once you once you you Mario pointed out to me and and helped me understand the the shape of the donut of the toroidal field. I instantly flashed back to that shirt that I wore for years, and that's exactly what it was. It was just that I think it's probably the most go-to accessible image of what a toroidal fuel is, and uh, and that's that's all I got to say about that. No, that's awesome. Good call. I've often wondered, um, I don't know, I'm sure there's just proof of this one way or the other, but that at some point between what we see with the tree and deep down in the roots of the tree, that there's a place of which the energy pattern reverses. Um, cause it seems like mm. our, our galaxy or anything else that's born would have its opposite. So if it's going to grow clockwise, that maybe the roots underneath are growing counter. Mm. Um, something mm. I always wondered. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, because that, that would get into the yin-yang. Well, I right, think that maybe right. they might go counter, like they might go concurrent to each other, at least according to Martin Kenny's work, that there's toroidal fields within toroidal fields with that each one of these planes that make up the egg universe has its own concurrent toroidal fields as opposed, and it's op- it seems to be to be opposite of the one next to it and the one next to that, that they all go. They can't have to counter each other. They have to counter. Yeah. I guess is that con- concurrent, I think is the word. I could be wrong. I probably am. I'm wrong a lot. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense, too. Um, and so it's almost like a nested dolls sort of thing, right? Absolutely, yeah. That's that's the example he brings up is, like, imagine a Russian doll, but, like, universes <laughs> stacked within each other and all all rotating and spinning opposite each other at different speeds, generating, um, you know, energy, generating literally reality and, and plane uh plain i guess planetary existence if you want to consider it plain planet mm-hmm. right everything turns there is no straight line i think one of the most fascinating examples of how energy moves is to look at men's hair because um, you can see where it, sometimes there's more than one place on and, and i don't know why you don't see it with women or maybe it's just because we tend to have more hair but with men you can see where the energy spirals out from the skull with the pattern mm. of the hair and oftentimes mm. Like I said, there'll be more than one, uh, which is fascinating because there's obviously some kind of an energy. Um, I don't know what's going on there, but it, it's very intriguing. And of course, we can see anything that's going to have a circular motion of growth to it. Like I said, right, right. And and then the interesting thing, too, is that we call it a Taurus field. And then we have um, this uh, constellation known as Taurus, which is one of the astrological signs, right? And um, it's been referred to that this Taurus field, uh, this it's the same thing as the world tree, just like what Dean was saying, right? Yeah. And that you go up the trunk to go towards heaven, apparently, or the heavens. You take this stairway to heaven. Uh, you ride this toroidal field upward. And the Egyptians referred to this sometimes. They had many names for it, is my understanding. But they referred to this sometimes as uh, the two horns of the bull. And that the cusp upward and the cusp downward are both symbolic of bullhorns, which is why uh, we call it a Taurus field to begin with, is kind of my understanding. Yeah, no, that makes perfectly good sense. Yeah, yeah. And then also, too, we literally have around the Earth 
Um, if you're looking at like the spherical NASA model of things, they literally acknowledge the fact that there is a gigantic toroidal field around Earth. And so it's a magnetic field called the magnetosphere. And so if you were to Google image magnetosphere Earth, um, you're going to see what I'm talking about. But it's basically a gigantic toroidal field around Earth. And um, I guess what Judy K. King in the ISIS thesis was trying to say is that um, there are appropriate times to ride the magnetic cusp out of here. And there are times where you don't want to ride the magnetic cusp out of here. And so uh, her whole entire book is really interesting. So she's breaking down Egyptian mythology and ritual and symbolism and literally kind of translating it to like modern day like physics stuff that people uh, who are interested in science and stuff would understand. And so uh, a lot of the concepts that they were referring to were heavily symbolic, you know, but she's actually breaking it down and saying like, oh, no, this is re a reference to the magnetosphere. You know, the stairway to heaven is literally the cusp uh, at the North Pole, you know, sort of thing. So she's worth looking into. And, and as you were saying that, too, I was thinking about currents, whether it be air currents, water currents. I mean, we know that there's certain times to ride certain currents to get to your location. There's other times where you're not going to get very far because you're going against a current. Mm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, even the word Taurus, T-A-R, um, you know, or T-A-U-R, um, Tor, T-O-R. So when you write Taurus as in the constellation, it's T-A-U-R-U-S. And then when you're referring to the Taurus field, it's T-O-R-U-S. But obviously, it sounds exactly the same. And so I spent a little bit of time looking into the word Tar, Tor, uh, anything T blank R. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of the stuff I kind of... Yeah, exactly. A lot of stuff I came across was a reference to the bull. And so when you have uh, Target, at, you know, even the store or a Target, you know, um, to which me... Is a circle with a dot. Yeah, which is a uh, bull's eye, right? Yeah. The bull's eye. So Target, Target. Um, so it was kind of interesting to me when the Tartarian stuff started coming around. Literally, we're talking about Tartar, right? T-A-R-T-A-R. And um, John O'Neill in Night of the Gods, his assumption or his belief, I guess, is that T-A-R etymologically is a reference to uh, potentially tree, as in world tree. Huh. And so it makes me wonder, you know, this is something that I kind of am um, not always looking into, the Tartarian reset cover-up business. But I'm trying to look for, like, some of the symbolic um, stuff within all of that research that could potentially relate back to uh, northern symbolism. And just from, like, casually glancing at some of this stuff, I've I found a couple of things that I think are kind of interesting. Like what? Well, one of the things is this um, idea that domes played a big part, potentially, in the Tartarian Empire. It seems like a lot of people, right, are referencing like older buildings that were Tartarian or uh, older photos of older buildings. And it seems like there's a lot of domes kind domes of to be and seen. arches, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of domes. And when I was watching a video of someone breaking down some of these buildings, I mean, dude, these domes are amazing. I was blown away, to be honest. I was like, I've never seen anything like this before. It was honestly, truly kind of awe-inspiring. Um, especially when you see like the architecture that we're kind of like quote unquote given nowadays, right? It, it is, it is absolutely awesome. 
it seems unbelievable when you start to see the the amount of detail and construction capability of these buildings that truly existed. They're not just artifacts and pictures. These are these were real structures. Yeah. And to think yeah. about how um, I believe that the architectural style that's been more contemporary in the last twenty years, I think, is called. Um, gosh, I forget. I forget what it's called, but it's something really, really grim, like desolate. I I, I don't know. Um, but it's mm-hmm. just it's just uh, it's all it's awesome so so talking about domes uh, it's interesting you know i immediately go to omnimax and how it's a perfect backdrop for dimensional observing of scenery uh, of course us being in a dome might make a, a beautiful backdrop for artificial scenery as well mm-hmm ah oh, right so i see what you're saying planetariums, things like that tend to have snow globe so that yeah so that you have this illusion of dimension right so wow have on a flat screen wow that's interesting. really interesting it's a nice backdrop for artificial visuals interesting almost like a 360 yeah. spectral yeah. reflection of yeah, each like side a, like a hol- yeah holograph yeah mm-hmm. a snow globe. that's fascinating that yeah that that's really intriguing i like that a lot um and so when you're when you're talking about dome symbolism, you're making a reference to the the great dome, the vault of heaven, um, the firmament, right? Mm-hmm. And so the very tippy top of the dome would be where the North Star is or Polaris is, okay? And everything rotates around that. Um, the center of that fixed cross, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And so as an example, when you're looking at Masonic artwork a lot of the times they have an arch and they'll have a keystone at the very top of the arch and the keystone, not every time, but a lot of times has uh, the symbol for cancer, which is like the six, nine. Right. And so to me, this is a reference to the churning of heavens, the rotation of the heavens around Polaris. Okay. And so 69 uh, being the cancer symbol is associated with the chariot card in tarot, which is the seventh card, which goes back to seven and, and G and everything else that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I'm seeing that that um, graph right now of the cancer symbol, and it does look like a, a wheel, also maybe a sprocket or chains, mm. chain link, which would turn a sprocket, which would make and fire and uh, you know a machine. Right, right. So uh, even if he's, if we don't even look at it as numbers, because we get so fixed on labeling things, it really just looks like two circles, um, you know, and they're just rotating around one another. Mm, mm, exactly. Some sort or something. Yeah. So you've got you've got two opposing bodies contained within a circle. If you just look at that a little bit differently. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so. A lot of times so. you'll see domes um, on the interior, uh, like in cathedrals and stuff. They'll literally have like a painting of heaven within the dome or the dome will be blue with stars or something like that. Or if you look at chariot cards and tarot, um, the chariot will be, um, you know, the charioteer will be within the chariot and then over him will be the canopy of heaven. And there will be like uh, it'll either be like blue fabric or it'll be some sort of illusion to uh, this dome sort of like firmament concept or whatever, because that card and like dome firmament symbolism is like intrinsically linked to each other, right? And so I started looking at some of these Tartarian videos and I noticed that some of these domes were really interesting and it's really common to see a dome 
with like a spire or like a tip at the top of the dome. Yeah, a needle, an antenna. Yeah, exactly. And so to me, that's very it looks functional to me, right? Like they're using it for some sort of purpose for, Absolutely. Uh, and there's and, more than one. There's rarely just one. There's usually threes, fours, five, six of them of, what? of the spires of the needle tip. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it where, uh, they have like a statue on the top of the dome of some sort? Um, I don't know if I've actually seen that close. There's uh there's a few photos that I saw. And I was surprised, pleasantly surprised to see that um, the tippy top of the dome had a needle. And then on the top of the needle, there was a little statuette of Mercury. And so, wow. How tricky is that? I know, exactly. And so it's just referencing all this stuff that I'm talking about here. Or also, too, it'll be like a figure that's standing on her tippy toes. And so uh, the standing on your tippy toes or standing on one leg is a northern axis reference as well, which is why, like in Crowley's main magician card, he's standing on his tippy toe. And a lot of times you see Mercury standing on its tippy toe. Okay. Mm. Um, The other thing I noticed, because I was just looking at this earlier today, is that you'll see a figure with uh, its arms doing the as above, so below reference. Which I'm coming to learn is that, you know, your body symbolically is polar in nature. So it's it's vertical, right? And yeah. so there's a polar concept with it being uh, right. up and down. But there's also a polar concept with it being from side to side, being split yeah. in the middle vertically. Right. It's also toroidal in nature, considering our spinal column and everything emanating out and through there. All of our nerves. It's, yeah. It's like there was a singularity and it split. And it um, mirrors each other. So, you know, we like we have two eyes, two arms. It's the star. Everything evolves into a star, it would it would seem. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And uh, I'm glad you brought up the spinal column, because to me, as we learn, as I learn about, I guess, the true nature of the earth, I feel like I'm learning about the true nature of my body. And as I learn about my body, I feel like I'm learning about the true nature of the earth because I really feel like there's this mirroring sort of concept as above, so below, as within, so without sort of thing kind of going on. And so I think that the polar symbol, because everything is a reflection of it, um, is our spinal spinal column within our body. I think so, yeah. a really good, I think a really good representation of that, a visual that almost anyone can see without trying to imagine what a a bisected human body would be, but just to imagine your, your basic, uh, headless fish, you know, mm. and like every, every animal is a star as a star shape, star formation, every animal, including a fish. But I mean, there's so mm. many fish you see at any kind of Asian market or any kind of market that sells fresh fish. They cut the head off and you see like the, the spine is almost directly in the center, maybe a little bit North of center, and then mm. everything radiates around that. Even the grain of the muscle makes it perfect toroidal. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, it's it's absolutely everywhere. Yeah, the pattern of nature would mirror itself. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Which is exactly. also the cancer but, symbol. But there's also a slight variation. So, like, even if you take the human face, they always say that, you know, it represents both sides of you. But it literally represents both sides of you. If you split somebody's face down the center and you were to mirror it, it wouldn't look quite like the same person. So mm. there's, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's, two, there's, two, uh, there's two of everything. And right. There's also some sort of weird departure from that as well. When you look at someone's face 
And if you can visualize a line bisecting it, there's some slight difference. I know. it's I know it's what you just said. But it's just a slight difference. Like a, the eye is just a little bit the lower. Eyebrows a little bit, you know, there's a, there's like a, nothing, you know, obviously not freckles and things like that that are visual, but just like the balance isn't exactly, which is opposite of what they teach you in art school or mm. art class that everything has to be, you know, it's, Symmetric. it's symmetrical, that there is this really high emphasis on symmetry. Um, mm, but mm, when it comes mm. to the human body and the human face, yes, the arms and legs are very much uh, symmetrical, almost identical, but the face is just a little bit off. And that's, to me, that's interesting. There's no perfect symmetry. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I feel like they're um, they're almost campy or something, right? Well, I'm sorry. What'd you say? I said they're almost campy. The perfect symmetry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, so the cool. Tartarian yeah. thing. Uh, when I was looking into it, seeing some of the symbolism on top of the domes, that's pretty much the main thing I wanted to bring up, and I just thought it was interesting. I mean, um, it makes perfect sense to me that they would construct these things in that way and kind of encode some of that symbology. Uh, I'm not saying that Tartaria as an empire was a northern-based culture or something like that, but it is fascinating to me, and that's something that I want to look into further and see what people have to say about that. Well, because the the dome itself is very feminine, and uh, of course it's the egg and and all that. But you also with that antenna that you're talking about, the thing on the top is the pole. So it's it's really no different than the phallus and the vagina or the womb. Um, so anytime you put a pole, you know, no no different than going to the moon and sticking the flag in. What you're really doing is you're putting that access point of control. Um, you're claiming it, and so this I think gets really rooted into male and feminine and sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and penetration of some sort, because that's really the more you look, the more you just see nothing but, you know, things that penetrate and things that get penetrated. You know, it's the cycle. Holes and holes. Holes and holes. Yeah. Yeah. So the dome <laughs> with the antenna on the top or whatever is erected on the top um, is would be the feels like the masculine aspect penetrating the feminine, claiming it. Yeah. 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 No, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of like obelisks and yeah. towers yeah. around. And um, I just, I really want to look into it at some point, but um, I want to know if any of these obelisks go downward into the, into the earth um, because this would speak to this penetrative sort of thing, this claiming of land thing that uh, you're bringing up. And I think it would be interesting actually just to share this with the audience, but one of the myths that's shared in the night of the gods book, um, he makes reference to an ancient myth basically of a somewhat, I guess, primordial ocean and some uh, landmass was somehow birthed and uh, was an island floating around this ocean, right? And um, it didn't, uh, it wasn't settled. So it was just constantly floating around and whatever. And at some point, I guess there's variations on this myth, but at some point a tree was planted or uh, just grew out of this island and once that tree grew and became large, that's when the island actually uh, ceased to stop moving and became settled. And so um, this is kind of a reference to everything that you're talking about is um, maybe some sort of chaotic, unsettled, moving sort of energy. Yeah. And then as soon as the phallus uh, makes that claim and sticks itself into the ground and sows its seed, that things become stable. Right, yeah, fixes it, it in it, place. Yeah, it would fix it in yes. place, and everything would rotate around 
that location. Right, like Kronos to Mercury. Right, 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 exactly. Actually, dude, that's really funny you say that because, once again, uh, John O'Neill's saying that uh, he believes that Kronos um, is actually a, a polar god as well, hmm. which I think is fascinating. But it might be, there could be a spectrum of polar gods and polar archetypes, I guess, and that some of them might be more central and some of them might be a bit further out. But regardless, they r- rotate around that central axis point. Wow. So I'm starting to wonder about the gods that are polar gods versus the gods that may not be polar gods that might be more of a different realm entirely that don't have a pole because they're part of that original abyss or might still be there. Um, mm, mm-hmm. Polar gods, it almost immediately references um, containment of some sort and mm. polarization, which we know is here on the realm that we live in. Everything is, has a polar Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. that said, the non-polar gods would be those that I would say are more wild and they aren't limited into that spectrum. Um, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. And then another random thought that came up as we were talking about the obelisks, um, there was a while back, and I can't remember what got me off on it, um, but it, it's a certain geometry. But it, if you remember in Hellraiser, in the very end, there was always the box, but the box could be moved, and then it became this... Uh, a shape and it looked almost it was like a diamond on top but what's interesting is that it also had a diamond on the bottom and so in one of the hellraisers it was when they finally found hell and it was this churning black looking um upward and downward uh diamond shape and uh, as soon as you said the obelisk going down both directions that's what came to mind and i wish i could mm. what it was called I, I might look that up but it was really prominent in some of my research, and it made a lot of sense, and now I can't remember why. So, Right. Um, the idea of, of gods maybe um, not being confined to a polar-based reality or whatever, uh, I, I think that's really interesting. I think we've talked about this before, kind of about my interpretation of the gods. And that, uh, you know, when I say Mercury or I refer to Isis or Kronos or whomever, um, I tend to internalize them personally. And so my journey is mostly an inward journey. And so um, I think that all of these gods that I've referenced today or that could be referenced, I suppose, um, you know, I think they're all aspects of our psychology and of our own psycho-spiritual sort of nature. And so um, I don't look at things in terms of it being like external gods actually existing or whatever. I think that all the gods are probably within us, um, good, bad, or otherwise, you know. I agree agree with both. It it, it does make you wonder, though, what would those gods that aren't polar gods inside of ourselves look like? And is that what we should be tapping into since we're so conditioned to, to work off these same entities that we hear about? What about the ones we don't hear about? Um, yeah you know what i would say i mean just kind of thinking out loud i don't know i mean if the phallus or pole um brings stability um to something i'm i'm just thinking out loud potentially maybe the non-polar aspect of ourselves um are more of a subconscious primordial kind of thing um and that it's really like these like very very like basic more shadowy sort of hidden um, aspects of who we are and that maybe what the world we see around us and our like waking life and our routine and everything else um, that might be more polar in nature, which is why we see it everywhere in symbolism and all around us in nature. 
Yeah, or controlled yeah. by. Or controlled by. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So, but yeah, great questions as always. I, I like your perspective a lot. It, it always gets me thinking about stuff. Yeah, this has been really cool, man. Um, yeah. So do you have anything else you want to add to some of these resets and cover-ups is why, like, why this would be so suppressed and why is all this information uh, do you feel is, is really important and should be acknowledged and, and at least attempted to be understood? You know, uh, I guess maybe the final thing about that for me personally would just be that um, I think that when you see things play out on the world stage – and it's being there's a hoax going on or um, some sort of cover up or whatever, you know, I, I do think obviously um, that there is a physical aspect to it. You know, if a country is being taken over or a story is being suppressed or what have you, um, I do look at things and I, I understand that there are people who have like vested interests in what happens with resources and people and, you know, all of those types of things. But I also They're rights, now... man. They're human rights, bro. <laughs> right. But I also really now I'm starting to look at things symbolically for better or worse, honestly. But it just makes me wonder what, if anything, I have more of a question than anything. It's like, what symbolically did the Tartarian reset cover up, you know, um, and what symbolically is going to be covered up, in my opinion, with COVID and everything. And so these big events that tend to happen that are uh, cover ups in nature, I think that there's like a physical 3D reality component to it. But I also think that there's a more metaphysical, symbolic, psychological, spiritual component as well. And that, um, you know, they want to control our symbolic language. And I think that that might mean more to them before anything um, physical in nature in that they want to control the way we think, how we see the world, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, because they're going to get more out of it at the end of the day if they control our minds, you know, and it's easier to control someone's mind than it is to like physically control them and subdue them and everything. You also control the mind because you can, we're, we're very creative beings and we can create based on the controls that they put on our thinking. And thinking never stops. So, it goes 24 seven. Our yeah. bodies have to go to sleep and heal and regrow, but our brains are constantly moving. So we're generating and creating all the time. So they just, they put out essentially the script on paper through the news, through media, through propaganda, through disappearing other information. And then we start to create it and live it out. So they really mm. don't do much more than put the stage out there and then we grab it and run. Um, and then we create, we create what they want to create. Um, but this kind of gets into something else I've been pondering with Mario. This is, is kind of out there because I was thinking about the mandala effect, which kind of always bored me. Um, but I've been thinking about more and more because it seems that we've got so many different people perceiving reality in so many different ways, and we could all be right. And with that said, I'm starting to feel like, um, kind of like when you look at the symbol of cancer and um, like, like cell division or the, a, a division in society. Like, could we, could we be seeing now things like, like these old civilizations that weren't visible before because they're starting, because we're moving into a different time and they're overlapping times. Mm-hmm. So, right. I'm starting to question like, how could we not have seen all this before, but now all of a sudden we're starting to see these discrepancies. Is it possible that that they're all simultaneously existing right now or beginning to? And so people are seeing differently. 
right. Our past, and maybe it's not our past we're looking at. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, I wish I had more to add to that, but um, basically, I'm I'm open <laughs> to that. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, and it does it does seem like we live um, in a reality where everything is existing at the same time. And I think that that's kind of the nature of the toroidal field is there's this always uh, if you look at a toroid, there's always the exterior and the interior. Right. And what's at the exterior will soon be the interior and what's in the interior will soon be in the exterior. And so it's this constant cyclical sort of thing in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, you know. Um, And so I think that we potentially might live in just a uh, living, breathing toroidal field right um but that everything that has ever lived or breathed is simultaneously existing at this very moment but we just happen to be in one sort of like uh partition of it or like a fractal 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 space of it sorry um and that you know uh potentially yeah maybe things are bleeding over i don't know i uh yeah i i wish i knew more about that but to me that's not out of the realm of possibility personally because it just seems like so much of this is so obvious. Like, how could it have been overlooked? How could I not have known that before? Why am I just now, you know, why is it just now coming into my my realm of consideration? Um, there's just, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah, that's how I feel about this information, if I'm being completely honest. Because I've never heard people talk about some of this stuff uh, plainly um, on the air. And I've been listening to, you know, podcasts and watching YouTube videos for like a really long time. And, you know, I'm open-minded, and so I've watched all sorts of different types of things. Um, And so, to me, the closest community that has uh, gotten to this kind of information, uh, for better or worse, is the geocentric kind of flat-earth community. And so, I would say that because I spent time with those people, the Martin Kennys of the world, um, you know, people like Santos Bonacci and Eric Dubay, uh, because I spent time looking at their work... I feel like I was much better prepared to absorb it once I finally got around to it. And now that I finally got around to it and I'm realizing that I'm just kind of like tapping into this history that's always been there, I'm like really surprised that uh, more people haven't talked about it. And when I'm seeing like the remnants of it, like in various groups, um, you know, seeing this being alluded to like within Freemasonry and like in tarot and everything else, I'm even more surprised that I haven't heard anyone talk about it. Uh, so, right, because you you guys haven't, right? I mean, not the polar solar, um, comp, you know, n- nothing quite like what you brought to the table today. But uh, you know, some of these things, as far as Night of the Gods, um, obviously Nazi occult that you can't throw a rock without hitting Nazi occult, and the Christmas symbolism <laughs> is all over the place. Yeah. It makes me think that some of the things, like maybe the, um, the the boundaries of our perceptions are becoming weakened as we grow into more of an advanced level, whether, I mean, some people, you know, dim age or a new enlightenment, um, that perhaps some of these toroidals are getting closer and closer together and kind of rubbing off on each other. And that perhaps we're seeing through, like you said, um, not necessarily our past, but potential futures and different manifestations of our already present future or present future. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes mm-hmm. any sense, but it seems like that could be something that some of these, if Martin Kenny lays out that there are uh, concentric toroidals spinning against and, and up close to each other, that perhaps they're starting to kind of lean in. And as we're getting through some breakthrough point. Mm-hmm. But I, I, think, I think 
some of this information was out there. I mean, I recall, I'm 51 now, and I recall, got 30 years ago, diving into some of these topics, and although they didn't interest me and I didn't, I didn't go further, there was definitely a, a huge current of information that was subculture that you could tap into. But I mm -hmm. don't know that it was so esoterically connected. Like, it didn't bring all the pieces and components together like it does currently. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. It's like the uh, information is finally starting to braid with one another and all the spokes are starting to form a wheel where you can see how they're all interconnected. The web is connecting. The knots to the web are starting to tie and make sense. So... Right, right. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I feel that way, too. That's what it seems like what's going on. Well, a lot, a lot of this, too, gets into topics that have just been loosely contained as alien topics or um, abduction mm. stories and, and things of the sort. So I, I think it's important to consider those in all of this, um, also considering that there's there's things like my labs, military abductions and such. So you really don't know what kind of an abduction is real or not. But there's always mm -hmm. been information that has been seeded through people that whether they're physically being abducted or they're having other experiences or for whatever reason are just being programmed, this information has been seeded over time and it just feels like it's just now starting to sprout. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I guess uh, I want to publicly say that if there's anyone out there who has information that they think I would be interested in or wants to correct me on any information that I put out there today, um, definitely get in touch because I'm just interested in learning and I'm not saying that I have all the answers with any of this stuff. So um, I'm just trying to like increase my awareness with all of this. Right. And that's awesome. Thanks, Mar. And that contact is still symbolicstudies.com? Yeah, you can find everything there. Oh, and Mario, awesome. I would love to know what's some of the um, some of your favorite books, authors, or speakers, lecturers that have been pivotal for you. Yeah, uh, I mentioned a few already. Um, well, you, you know, we were talking about Martin Kenny. I would say that if you haven't looked into his work and if you like this kind of material, um, definitely look him up online. Um, Santos Bonacci, I feel like, is a good one too. Um, he's a syncretist, and so uh, he knows a lot about astrology. Um, I would say I also mentioned Eric Dubay earlier too, um, because he has some videos that gets really close to this type of material on YouTube. Um, he has a website blog called um, The Atlantean Conspiracy. Um, I also mentioned um, the authors that, of the books I referred to, but once again, Night of the Gods by John O'Neill, uh, Judy K. King, The Isis Thesis. The Gates of the Necronomicon by Simon was pretty pivotal for me with this research. And then I know, Christy, I've recommended this one to you too. Uh, Babylonian Star Lore by Gavin yeah. White, I yeah. think is very interesting for a lot of different reasons. Um, so yeah, I would say that that's probably a pretty good start there. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Shit, yeah, man, really cool. So um, you... We, we, you and I talked, I think, earlier in the week about how you might reproduce this conversation um, with your own video visual representations for a YouTube channel. Are you still thinking about doing that? Yeah, I'm still thinking about it, um, depending on how you guys think everything went. I think everything went great, man. I think this is really cool. Yeah. Pretty interesting. And I don't think there was any real dull points. I think there was a one um, pregnant silence for maybe three I seconds. I think we're done with the show now. We're casual. We might be, yeah. <laughs> Unless you have anything else you wanna you wanna you wanna finish off with any any um, final points or anything you wanna make, 
Mario? Uh, no, dude. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, uh, obviously you can see that I'm really interested in the subject. So hopefully there's someone out there that gets something out of this. Um, you know where to reach me. Uh, but yeah, I had a good time. This was really fun. Hopefully I represented the information uh, appropriately enough. I'm still going to continue digging into it. So who knows where I'll be at in like six months or something. Um, the the William Henry book. So you said Tule. He he called it Tula. It's all kicking back. It was almost traumatizing because he said the word so many times. I can't get it out of my head. Uh-huh. So um, I'm, I think I know where that book is, and I'm going to look. But it was a pretty – I've had it for like 15 years maybe or something. And, and if you're looking for information on that, it might there might be some really good stuff in there. I'm going to pull it. Are you looking for anything in particular with that, or are you even looking for anything? Uh, I'm nothing in particular. But, yeah, any any recommendation, honestly, along these lines, I'm, I'm totally interested in right now. Yeah. I'm reading a lot these days, so I'm probably reading more now than I have in a long time. So, um, yeah, I'm just digging it up. Yeah, it's good stuff. Definitely. I, I also, um, so I've, I've been reading more of my anti-cosmic books, and, and I, I didn't want to say anything on the show, but they're, they affiliate the elves, was it the elves? The elven realm with the abyss realm. So they basically say that uh, anything that they would have been from the primordial. So whatever you see, elven or that realm itself, the elves or the whatever, um, that that's part of the anti-cosmic realm, which would be the abyss, like the outside of this uh, outside of this egg. Mm, I see. I'm sensing that it's probably in the south, but I don't know. I haven't heard references to that yet. But it's it's gotten pretty good here the last few days that I've been reading, and so I'm, I'm watching for that. But it's been, it might be pertinent, so I'll watch if you're. I, gotcha. I really, want to know, I really want to know what happens when you take that other spiral down. I know. Yeah, I think it's very because, it's a very interesting question. Because what what if you go up? You know, what if we're all programmed to go north? And by going north, we get stuck in one of those outer rings, and we can't get back into the inner ring to catch the elevator to get back out. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, you, you know, here's the other thing, and um, I don't know if you're still recording or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I would say maybe um, one clarifier on my end with all this information is that right now I'm really interested in what the ancients believed and I'm kind of maybe a little divorced, even though maybe it didn't seem like that in the show, um, from actually like believing it myself. And so if people believed that you go east to go north to the North Star and that's where you want to go when you die, uh, yeah. I'm not saying that that's exactly where I'm at and that yeah. that's what I want to do. You know, yeah. I'm just very curious to know why they would think that and so that's kind of where i'm at right now it's just like observing and trying to learn as much as possible and obviously i'm making my own connections and everything but uh i'm not saying that this is like necessarily even like my belief system or whatever yeah yeah. Yeah, no i hear you don't die on that hill yeah no and i dude i've done it so many times where um i thought i had it figured out or i was committed to some idea or whatever and then you just end up learning better at the end of the day and so for me it's just like i'm taking in all this information absorbing as much as possible um but i'm not committed to anything basically and i don't know if i ever will be i love it man yeah you got to stay hungry i think that's why i find you so fascinating as a a friend Awesome, thanks. Uh, what, what if we're already inverted? And so the North Star is, isn't really the North Star. Maybe it's the opposite. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, Regina has taught us, taught me, is that, you know, if you look at the Kabbalistic tree life as an example, you know, Earth is at the very bottom. And so we live in like a descended realm or descended place. Um, But she was saying that even though we're in a descended place, we're at the top of another tree of life and that that tree goes down. And then the very bottom of that tree of life is the top of another one. And so it's kind of like the toroidal sort of thing where it's just like, yeah, you know, actually, if I'm being completely honest, if the North Star has as many positive things that have been said about it over the years, um, it makes me wonder then that there must be something really malefic about it too. That well, there could yeah, be something really sinister about it. Because the North Star comes up in what the story of Bethlehem and all that good stuff, but those aren't the gods that I trust. Exactly. And so why would I want to align myself with their star of worship? Right. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. I mean, honestly. And so it's just like, uh, is the North Star is Polaris like the demiurgic star? You yeah, know? that's how that's how I feel about it. Well, that's the thing. And I that's mean, that's why I, I'm feeling. Yeah. I, that's why I'm exploring the uh, opposition, the opposing direction. Like, what what's not north that might feel more sovereign to me? You know, and I, 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 I that might just be. I don't know. You know what's you know what's a possibility? I would say that um, if you're looking for the opposite of north, uh, you're you're there. You're 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 already there. I know. I just hate the word opposite because it seems so programmed. Say polar. I don't like. I don't like anything that means extreme of another because I mean. I mean, well, like, like I heard this one one phrase one time. I was um, I think I got it from Robert Morning's guy. But he's like, "What's the opposite of tall?" And of course, your response is short, but that's not true. The opposite of tall would be deep. Because you have mm-hmm. to have a point of reference, right? You have right. to have that third point in order to reference what's tall and what's deep. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, it's funny. I think, I mean, as, as it gets to be clear that every single thing that, that we've come to understand as being what makes our reality is demonstrably false, in many, many ways has been a lie that it only stands to reason that not that the opposite of everything is true, but that it's just been inverted so that there's a whole, there's a whole nother side to it. Well, it's inverted and then it's all variations of the same thing. And I, those I, variations become perverted, which increases the inversion. But it's all perspective. The Kabbalion really changed my, my thinking um, on the, uh, I don't know what they call it, something of polarities or the something of polarities. But anyway, the little tiny section on polarities, it taught me everything because it just depends on your, of your, perspective you know once mm, mm-hmm. it slides up and down a scale it's constantly sliding on the scale so if you've got you know you've got one point here and one point here you've got to have that point in the middle in order to judge what is one and what is the other so that's why i keep feeling like we're the the individual is the third pillar the individual is that tree of life or that pole or, or however you want to look at it because you've got to have that center point to see the the differences between the two. Yeah, exactly. Is this why we're called people? Ah! Right. <laughs> Honestly, and so I like that's one of the things where I'm like, wait a second. So we have we're people, and then we have to participate in. Uh, we go to the polls yeah. for politics, yeah. you know. And so there's all these different like etymological things with polls where I'm like, 
whoa, what if we are like we're a uh, we're a polar race? We're people. Yeah. Or that's why Each we. Each one of us is people. our own toroidal, so of course that would make sense. Right, and then also too, if you're being true to yourself, a lot of times people say um, you're true north, right? What, what, what's your true north, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, it's also interesting if you look at Tevas, it comes up a lot. The rune, it looks like an arrow. Um, it's referred to as the true north, but really, if I think about it even more, it's got the um, it's got the three it's got the three angles again. I, what mm. you call X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right, and right. That, that middle point would be the ah. piercing through the center. I mean, you can, mm. you can pivot any direction you want to. You're always going to have that opposite to the other side. Does that make sense? Ooh, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The whole thing has a creation of the two. The cell always divides. That's very interesting. So check this out. I mean, Mercury, uh, one of the names for him, right? So... Uh, is Hermes same same energy basically I think most people would agree with that but um the long name for him would be uh Hermes Trismegistus right I think I'm saying that right but it's the thrice great Hermes and so there's always this um triad sort of concept with Hermes Mercury which I think is really interesting and what if it is the three different axis lines what if is what if it is x y and z well, you know, I, like I, and it makes sense too. You know, I've been popping into Gnosticism, and they say it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is actually the feminine, uh, mm-hmm. which is the Aether. So, uh, you know, there's the Trinity again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all over the place for sure. And then even uh, literally, you know, uh, I it's my understanding that we get the word three from tree, and yeah. then uh, Mercury, Hermes, going up and down the world tree. So, and then one other thing I was going to mention, sorry, related to trees. Did I mention the word axe yet? We talked about axis, but yeah, what's... No. I mean, it, it's just to me interesting that you chop down a tree at the axis with an axe. And yeah. so is that where we get the word axe from? Is it actually about uh, the axis line, the uh, the world tree axis? You know, I don't know. Just well, thinking and out. Then, and then I, I look too at trees and they always have, you know, what is a tree with one branch? Usually a tree has, it's going to have an opposing branch somewhere. Like Mm. trees don't Mm -hmm. grow with just one, one side of branches unless the sun doesn't hit them correctly. So, I mean, you've always got, you've always got two, like there's always limbs, for instance, they grow out, but then they split. And then once they split, now you've got three points, I guess you call them three axes. I call them little dots, you know, the end of each branch represents, but you've got three, three segments. Mm-hmm. Right, I see what you're saying. So if you've got one and it splits, one, now you've two, got three. the one and then the two. So when it when something splits, then you've got three. Mm-hmm. Right, right. True. So yeah, maybe exactly. You had the, maybe you had the mother, and then the mother split, and now you've got the father, son, and then the Holy Ghost that would be the Trinity. So clarity, mm-hmm. and then she split off, then you would have the two, and then the offspring would be the three. Right, right. Yeah, no, I love it. This is probably why, by the way, all this stuff is why uh, Crowley made three magician cards ruled by yeah. Mercury. You know, he didn't make two, he didn't make four, he made three. And I bet you that's pretty significant that he chose that for a very good reason, you know. But yeah, three symbolism goes on and on and on and on. Our our uh, our spinal column has 33 vertebrae, yeah. you know, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then 33 is like, you know, the number that people mostly associate with uh, Freemasonry and everything else. So um, I don't know. It's all very curious. Well, yeah, don't they, it's a 33 
levels or 33, 33rd degree. So with each of those levels is another higher branch. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like hierarchy of branches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they, um, you know, they have a lot of steps in their artwork and a lot yeah. of ladders and stuff. Yeah. And to me, I'm just thinking it's like, is this the stairway to heaven? You know, um, I don't know. I think it's interesting. And then Biden, he fell on his way to Air Force One. I'm sure you guys saw that, right? Yeah. How could best you not? ever. Best <laughs> ever. Falling what a, what a up. Show. Falling up a flight of stairs. Oh my God. <laughs> let, let me throw this out there real quick. I think some of the rituals are basically more, maybe even more simple than what we think. And so I think a lot of people assume that like it's this crazy, esoteric. That yeah. super, super complex thing. Yeah, yeah, super complex. Kind of like, it reminds me, honestly, a lot of Kabbalah and, like, Gematri and stuff. It can get so complex that you just don't even know what's going on sort of thing. But it's like, what if their rituals are really simple? Like, yeah. they're just showing you someone trip up a flight of stairs. And yeah. that seemingly that's like yeah. a mundane like not that big of a deal sort of thing but what if it either for them is a big deal because it uh symbolically encodes whatever they're trying to get across or yeah. what if it's like a subliminal sort of thing for us where we're just seeing somebody you know um fall off um their way uh fall from their ascension towards heaven or something like that like that would be like the right. esoteric right. meaning well, well and this i think a lot of the drama that we get stuck into thinking that part of the um part of the theatrics and the uh, the quality of the theatrics is part of ritual or ceremony. But I mean, you can just look at basic folk magic and know that you can grab anything around you that, that fits into, into the workings and it will work. And I believe it works just as well as somebody who spends a week deciding that they're going to make a ceremonial robe and go out and do something else. I, I mean, I don't think it has to have all this. Um, we see a lot of pompous and ceremony in England and, in the higher ups in the rankings, but really true magic can be much simpler. And I, I've also learned this from watching mm. um, other groups that do ceremonies. And I, I look at what they're wearing in their ceremonies. I'm like, seriously, that that's your, that's, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I would have taken more time and honored it more this way, but it still appears to work for people. And so I think we're, we yeah. overthink it and it just doesn't have to be so. I think one of the most impactful magic rituals that takes place all day long every single day that gets completely underrated is the simple handshake mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right that's, that's it i mean it's just like it's become so benign and part of gentleman's civilized culture and that's also been pushed into the paradigm uh, to integrate this this uh, specific and particular ritual because it's it is a ritual but now it's been replaced with elbow bumping nah. <laughs> not, amongst, not amongst the elite you know they still no, do it's it. true the handshake now i think more than ever holds holds some value in it that it didn't before because not everyone's willing to to um to that ritual anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. Perhaps it's uh, it's spent. Perhaps it's it's well, now passé. Well, or maybe it's just been privileged. Oh, that's interesting. For those yeah. that those that know that there's no reason to concern yourself with touching in a handshake ritual. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think those are good points all around. Uh, the simplicity thing, 100%. I can get on yeah. board with that. Um, so uh, Biden tripped on his way up to Air Force One, and then we had the Suez Canal issue. Yeah. With the uh, boat blocking the canal, which is right? a which... giant, yeah. There's, the, there's a canal, and there's a a lodging of a long phallic pole containing 
infinite, seemingly infinite, although it is finite probability and possibility with all that cargo. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, you know, all economics, which is magic. And, and it gets right. lodged. And for some reason, they can't figure out. They just can't figure out how to get it undone. And Yeah, 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 exactly. And and you could look at this, too, as being mercurial in nature in that it, uh, mercury always is moving. It doesn't get stuck, yeah. you know. And so it's almost like they're putting out there the opposite of um, – what uh, a lot of hermetic people are really into, which is this idea of everything mercurial, which is a whole rabbit hole too, because mercury can mean so many different things, right? Um, but movement is one of its primary sort of archetypal uh, images that you associate with it, is that it's always on the move, always on the go, always traveling to the different realms and being a messenger, right? Yeah, so, so if you were to interpret that, you might even uh, consider that it's an attempt to keep us tied into a space of liminal or no time yes load time or yep. uh, there's definitely a blockage an intentional blockage set there regardless of how long it takes to move it it doesn't change the fact that it happened and um and for many people it'll be it'll be forever happening because it's one of those things that'll just get locked into your consciousness and no one will ever forget it which makes it live forever and and right. reenact itself in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there was an evergreen um, diesel truck that was blocking like a highway. I believe it was in China somewhere. Yeah, talking you know? about simulation, almost the exact well, and, same thing. Well, it could thing. be. It could be a ritual to kick off the uh, stagnant flow of goods. You know, I, I think we're looking at that anyway, even though we're not really seeing all the signs of it. But I think we're going to see commerce and whatnot tighten up as maybe restrictions occur or things become more limited. Um, you know, we're just not seeing all the full effects. But I mean, as a as a shop owner, I can say that there are certain items that have not shown up now for over a year. They're no longer available, even though they're said to be one day. Um, the rest of the world is on their own time as well. So uh, we could see shortages of things. And that could be a kickoff of shortages of things to show that there's not going to be movement of the commerce. It's going to slow up with limited travel and restrictions. Well, Mercury is also the god of merchants. Yeah. Mercury merchant, right? Yeah. And so, uh, and also has a lot to do with the flow of money. Yeah. And uh, we mentioned, right, so it's the evergreen boat that got stuck in the canal and then yeah. the evergreen uh, diesel truck that blocked the highway. Uh, what's the color of Mercury? Yeah. Uh, green. Green. Specifically emerald, but green. Yeah. You That's know. true. And there was also the, um, I think it was called Ever Given, like the... Yes. the ship was called evergreen but there was the company was ever given or the company was evergreen and the ship was ever given right right I, i'm not sure which one it was but that's so, pretty interesting there so yeah that could that could have been a ritual kickoff uh, a statement sure sure yeah so just thinking out loud here i don't know yeah, it's so I simple think, but I, I think some of these things could yeah. be really effective they don't i don't think they need to be very complex well yeah i mean just look at all the flies that were showing up on uh, faces you know during Right. Press conferences. I mean, what, that's that's ridiculous that we that that would even happen. Or how about you know Bernie and his bird? I mean, yeah, it's right, right. It's incredible. It's like watching a Disney movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or the uh, the black eyes, people, yeah. uh, politicians, yeah. or whatever, having these black yeah. eyes in public and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, awesome, dudes. Well, this was fun. Awesome, Mario. Thank you so much, man. Hey, do you think, Dean, you could cut some of that into here as, like, after, like, you know how they do on movies? What do you mean, cut one into what? Like, on movies, they always have, oh, here's the outtakes. 
Oh, blooper reel? Yeah, maybe you could do some outtakes because our, our conversation after we ended was really good. So maybe you could. We have some... never. We haven't ended. We're still recording. Well, this would be a really weird ending. This is how podcasts <laughs> are, baby. Really? Yeah, all natural. I don't know. No about frills. This. I like things a little cleaner. Well, well, that's up to you guys. Whatever. I'm no, no, I, I'm into whatever. But no, I agree. I think the ending conversation was good, and honestly, I I'm glad I um. It was nice to be able to follow some notes, but I kind of like not following notes because I feel like that maybe tripped me up a little bit uh, <laughs> in the beginning or whatever. Because I feel like I needed to stay on course, but my mind wanted to go elsewhere. And so I was conflicted with whether to like stay on task or like to go on tangents or whatever. But you obviously don't know that some of Dean's podcasts can go for like five hours. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no. I've I had some really that. long ones, but I try to keep them a little short because I don't like pr- I don't like putting them into two episodes. Um but this was really good. I'm going to produce it all as one show. Cool, man. Yeah. Did we say anything weird? No. No, everything was great. But I do want you to <laughs> let everyone know again how they can get a hold of you and let them know um, if you – I mean, you don't have to commit to it. But I, I love the idea of you taking this audio and finding um, some some visuals for it for a YouTube channel, YouTube show or whatever. And, of course, I'll just send you um, the audio itself and you can chop up whatever you don't think is relevant or what you don't want to put in there because we are at – over two hours and 18 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, dude. No, I'm definitely down to uh, chop it up. Uh, at, or at the very least, uh, put in some visuals. So I don't cool. know if I'll take out any content. Yeah, I think but, that'd uh, be so cool. Because I think if anyone's listening to this and they're as interested in it as I am and you are and Christy, um, yep. it's it'd be much easier, even if they're halfway interested in it, to see some of your representations that you could put out there. I mean, I thought what was so astounding, and I'm not going to suggest you do this, but what yeah. was so interesting and fun about just tapping into Martin Kenny stuff is his his homemade props. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> his homemade no, those things are amazing. But they're, but they're so visual, so helpful. I, I just the visual. Oh yeah, make a big difference. Yeah. So, I'd be happy to do this, man. Yeah, I'll do it proper too. Uh, so I'll probably spend a little bit of time uh, once we're all moved in and stuff, making an edit. Totally. Yeah. Are I'll, you gonna make us a cosmic egg? Am I gonna make you guys a cosmic egg? Yeah. I mean, uh, if you guys want, <laughs> I will. One. I, I like my cosmic <laughs> eggs. Um, Scramble. I like my cosmic <laughs> eggs, soft boiled, no less, no longer than five minutes. Immediately ice bath. I want that yolk runny. I'm writing notes right now. And I like to <laughs> just peel off of my hard boiled egg. <laughs> um, um, all right, so symbolic. Uh, symbolicstudies.com that's where people can find your artwork keep up with their monthly um, astrological chart astrological um, I guess symbolism and more definition and flesh out how things are moving along with those who identify with that particular month and that particular zodiac sign Uh, is there anything else about symbolicstudies.com you want to say or uh, I'm it? releasing. Uh, I mean, you pretty much got it. I'm releasing a poster uh, each month for the next year. That's the game plan, at least. And so these are like silk screen posters. Um, lots of love went into them, and uh, I think the artwork is coming along pretty nicely. So basically, oh, I'm, I'm committing prints, myself. I'm sure, right? Yeah, yeah, all limited. So I'm getting, committing myself to this project for the next year, basically. So uh, if you're interested in astrology, I mean, it would be a good way to learn um, just by keeping along with what I'm putting out there. Do you have a, an email sign up too, or just check back on the website? Uh, I don't at the moment, but I probably should. I don't think it's a bad idea at all. 
And then also, so you had mentioned that you were going to be talking a little bit about uh, the the meaning behind the art that you did. Is that going to be on the website with each release of the print, or where can we find information to learn and, and follow along with the details that you put into the craft? I would say um, probably my blog would be the best place because I'm creating content for a few different channels um, right now. So uh, I'm trying to get my name out there on social media and stuff, but I think everything that I put out will at least be referenced or linked to on the blog. So I'm kind of figuring that that's going to be like the hub of the wheel of sorts. Yeah. What's your blog called and where's it at? It's at symbolicstudies.com. And so that's all uh, symbolic studies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll see the blog link there somewhere. Great. Awesome, dude. Well, this was fun. Thanks for having me on. So cool, Mario, man. Thank you so much. I'm so glad. This is really cool. Yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. All right, guys. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Take care. See ya.